I would like to hear of anyone that has any thoughts or feelings on the stories that uh, I've been able to put uh, a share with you. I look forward to hearing from you. Um, the following story was given to me um, by Arthur Hyatt, I know his daughter, born 1930, London. I was born at White, the Whitechapel Hospital to Elizabeth Hyatt, Neve Smith. My mother was born in 1904 in the same area of London. On leaving school, she worked in a factory making toothbrushes and shaving brushes from badger hair. My mum's parents lived in Pritchard's Road, Bethnal Green, which was a two-up and two-down property. My grandma, grandmother made much matchboxes for Brian and May. She stuck on the strips of paper, which she first put in water, then stuck on the form. She received very little money for this. She also made trousers for schoolboys. Her husband, my grandfather, was a cork cutter, and this was fitted into policemen's helmets. A bit more interesting information to learn. He died before I was born, so I never knew him. My aunt Lena lived close by and she worked as a French polisher, which she carried out in her garden. My father, Henry Hyatt, was also born in 1904. He worked in a shoe factory, the same one where his father was employed. They made ladies' shoes for, for during the World War Two, and they made boots for soldiers. I was the youngest of identical twins. My brother was also, was also called Henry. We started school aged two and a half and we used to sleep in the afternoons after the blinds were pulled. We were living in Pritchard's Road, Bethnal Green at that time with my mother's parents. We later moved to live with my father's mother in North Street, Hackney, after her husband, my grandfather, died. The landlord would visit every week to collect the rent money, which was six penny farthing. It must have been a struggle to, for people to find enough money then, as mum often spoke of people having their furniture thrown out in the streets when they could not afford to pay the rent. We attended Molan Street Infant School for boys and girls from 1935. There we learnt to read and write and basic arithmetic. When we reached the age of eight years, we went to Sewardston Road Junior School. This was quite a distance away. It was near to Victoria Park. In their park, there were swings, slides, a boating lake, lido, bandstand and a menagerie. We would play in the park and sometimes turn the skipping rope for the girls. Eventually the house where we lived in, in North Street was demolished and we moved to a council flat, flat on the Pembury Road estate in Clapton. This had electric lighting, a bathroom and two bedrooms. Most of the families moving from North Street then were housed on the same estate. At the outbreak of World War II we were, li we were listed to Chamberlain. We listened to Chamberlain this, announcing this on the wireless. We were evacuated to Norfolk, a place called Paston, close to the east coast. We stayed with the Chamberlain family in Paston for one year, after which the government became for the safety of evacuees. The threat of invasion on the east coast seemed likely, so we were put on a train to Woodend near Tamworth in the Midlands. After we arrived at our new destination, we were taken to a field where households had already gathered. Mr and Mrs Hunt took us into their home, which was a cottage keeper's cottage in the valley. This had been a hunting cottage in the past. We attended a local school but due to the increase in population 
caused by evacuees, there was only one room to accommodate us in the mornings, as there was a shortage of teachers as was brought out of retirement. On leaving for work one morning, Mr Hunt found chickens and pigs running loose outside. He told us there were bits of pigs hanging from the trees as there had been a bombing raid overnight. Our parents were now really worried about our safety due to where we were living. Um, so they made a decision to bring us back to London. On our return to London, we attended the Grocer School, a lovely Victorian building near to where we lived in Clapton. The 11 plus had ceased during the war, so all we, went to, we all went to an elementary school. Two years later, having reached the age of 14, we left school and started work. I was fortunate enough to gain employment with a building company. Part of our work was to go to properties that had been bombed had bomb damage so we could board them up we also had contracts to board up pubs and the uh, and the drayman would leave out barrels out it was our responsibility to, to make the roof waterproof weatherproof i remember working at the cock tavern hybrid corner where we were boarding up the windows when a doodle bug drop, bug dropped on a nearby station my workmate dropped through the roof to the bottom floor injuring himself i was blown through a window and a piece of glass sliced into my head Somebody wrapped my head in a towel, then put me on a tram to Whittington Hospital to get treatment. I still have that scar. Our teenage years seemed to last forever. Both my brother and myself had left school and were working. I started evening classes. However, one night a V2 rocket landed on it and demolished the back of the school. I was promised another place at a school further away that only had gas lighting. The Germans struck again, this time with a doodlebug and the school was completely demolished. In 1948, my brother and I enjoyed dancing and we went to parties with our friends. As we reached 18, we all received our call-up papers to do national service. My brother and I went for our medical together and were successful in getting places as a first choice at RAF. We went to Padgate for our basic training and then moved on to RAF Cranwell number one radio station after passing the course I was posted to RAF Marham in Northup but after a couple of weeks I was moved again to a radio radar site in Bicester. After my time at RAF Bicester I was told I was being posted to Germany. My brother was stationed at RAF Heensford so I stayed with him until we both were dispatched to Germany. We had no idea exactly where in Germany we were going or why. We landed at RAF Gatto in Berlin. After reporting to the signals commander, I was enlightened on the situation. I wondered why there were so many aircraft landing and taking off day and night. We were told we were feeding the German population of Berlin by air, reporting not only food but other supplies such as coal, oil, baby food and engineering equipment. In fact, anything that was needed to sustain life was brought in by air as there was no other route open. I was set to work in the control tower, controlling air traffic. The shifts were long as we were in a station operating over 24 hours. Towards the end of my time in Berlin, I was sent to RAF Gushishun in the British zone as they had demolished some air traffic controllers and this had left them short-staffed. I was trying to get a return to Gatu and my brother one evening, my brother one evening rang me to see if he could help. There was a celebration going on there and he explained that the WAFs were returning to Britain as it was becoming too dangerous for them to stay in the to stay to for the, because of Russian occupation. 
the risk of, I was eventually returned to Britain, Berlin, and was put in charge of Direction, direction Finding Unit in 1949, NATO had just been formed and I had direct contact via red telephone to NATO headquarters if needed. In January 1950, I was sent to RAF, RAF for a rehabilitation course. This was intended to prepare me to go back into civil, civil, civilian life in March of that year. I soon realised it was a scam to get me to sign on for further service. I knew they were looking for wireless operators to go into the east of Germany, but I wasn't having any of that. Instead, I returned to RAF Kirchheim in March 1950, and I was demobbed from there. I was once again a civilian and returned to my old job. Three months later came the Korean War. I was recalled and sent to London Airport to retrain on radar and more modern equipment, in case I was needed for further service with the RAF. My girlfriend... I was not pleased as we were making plans to marry. I resumed my studies at the Northern Polytechnic after securing my pre previous employment. I married Vi in March 1952 at St Mary Church, Dalston. We rented a flat in Colverston Crescent where we stayed for about six years. Our first daughter, um, Valerie, was born in 1954. We then mo moved to a relative's house and rented a flat there. In 1962, our second daughter, Gillian, was born. About 18 months later, we decided to move out of London to Huntingdon. As we wanted a house of our own, I obtained work as a draftsman for a, a refrigeration company, but unfortunately the pay was not that good. My friend Tom, who was a factory foreman, and I left the company and obtained subcontract work so that we could make enough money to buy our own houses. I bought a house in Sawtree. Tom and I were working for a builder on a research centre and they asked me if I would like to work for them direct. I joined their design team as a senior architect and stayed there until my retirement in 1995. I carried on privately with my architect consultancy, designing houses and extensions, but as the planning laws and building regulations became more complex, I called it a day and retired gradually, much to my wife's pleasure. That should be disgracefully, much to my wife's pleasure. My wife, Vi, died in 2009. My daughter, Valerie, has now retired from her management position with Department of Works and Pensions. And my youngest daughter, Gillian, is still working as a knitwear design development manager. This is my life story. Well, not all of it, as I'm still alive. True. The end. Ronald Pittman, born 1929. My father... My, fa my father, Ronald Arthur, worked for the Air Ministry. I know that he was pretty high up. He had been transferred from London to Coventry. Every night we would head for the nearest shelter. We were near the Blitz. I remember October the 12th, 1942, the biggest day of the Blitz. I recall how we used to go into the recreational ground where shelters had been dug. The following morning we returned to our house we had to walk home as there were no buses. We discovered that five houses down from our house there was a parachute stuck on a chimney. On on the end was a great big bomb. It had, hadn't gone off. If it had, then the house in our street would have been destroyed. As Mum was walking, she kept repeating the words, I wonder if the house is still there. I think that this must have be, been enough for my parents as they packed our cases and we walked away from my home. My parents and I walked out of Coventry. 
was 11 at the time, they had decided to leave Coventry and to head to Northampton. Mum came from Northampton. We were just carrying one case each. A passing driver stopped and asked what, where we were going. When we told him of our planned destination, he told us that we were going in the wrong way for the bus station. He took us to his house and gave us tea. After tea, he, tea, he took us to the bus station. A really kind act. The next memories are from May Morris, born 1928. My mother's name was Hilda Mann and dad's name was Harry Mann. My brothers were Bill, Harry, John and Ken, Ken and sisters Mary and Doreen. I stationed in Chatham. We were going to be inspected by King George, so we had been given a few days off. I was in the Naffy Club. Some sailors had arrived from a Royal Navy ship. They had been sailing the Mediterranean. A young man asked me to dance and then he asked me to go for a drink. I had a cider. He walked me back to the Wren's quarters. Then he asked me to go to the pictures. The next evening we went to a film. Afterwards he walked me back to the Wren's quarters and asked me to marry him. I said no. About 12 months after I had been demobbed when I was scraping potatoes with my mother. She told me that I should write to Cliff. He had been writing to me since I met him. She said I should tell him not to bother writing to me anymore. I said I wouldn't like him to think I hadn't contacted him, so I wrote to him and said that I would marry him. He came for his Easter leave to our house. He told me that he had been in the Marines and had been shot in the leg whilst in, in Burma. We married on August 15th, 1950. We spent Christmas together and then he was sent to Korea on the HMS Constance. For the first four years of our marriage, I never saw him, but he used to write every day. When he came back to Plymouth, we saw each other at weekends. When he was demobbed, we moved to Rawns. We had three children, Melanie, Ian and Andrew. Ian served 22 years in the army. He came out as a warrant officer. Melanie works in education and is a school governor. Ian works in an office and Andrew is a postman. They are very good children and are always there for me. On April 25th, 2011, my husband died. At the funeral, my daughter's husband read a tribute to him. The Lowestoft lifeboat took his ashes out to sea. He had always loved Lowestoft. We had a mobile there. Glen Warner, born 1927. Dad died when I was eight. And as I was one of five sons, life wasn't very easy for my mother. In order to become a breadwinner, I left school at the age of 14. I later enrolled in an evening class at the Wellingborough Technical College, where I was to remain for some time. I was determined to do something with my life, which is why I decided to become a draftsman and develop an understanding about building. I'd always had an interest in architecture, and would love to have become an architect, but due to financial implications, coupled with the fact that it would have taken seven years, several years to qualify, I followed up my second choice. I worked in the drawing office at Hunter and Penrose, but was called up to do a national service and joined the clerical department of the REF. In 1946, where I continued to work as a draftsman, having saved enough money whilst in service, I was able to enrol on a art and design course at Northampton College. During my time at college I collected a portfolio and it was from this that I was chosen to go and work at a studio in Northampton but I still felt that there was something else that I should have been doing with my life then. 
I decided that I would prefer to have a job working with people, which is why I decided to become an officer in the Salvation Army. By 1939, Mum had moved her business to Abbey Road. As the war had started, it was a bad time for her. Rationing came. As Mum was selling Parsons pork pies and cooked meats, all of these were rationed, but her business survived. It was opposite the Prince of Wales pub, which is now a home for disabled people. My brother courted the landlord's daughter. My brother was an engine, engine driver. He had passed the 11 plus, but Mum couldn't afford to pay for his uniform. As he'd always dreamt of becoming a train driver, he wasn't disappointed about not having a grammar school education. He wasn't conscripted, as driving trains was, of course, essential. He used to take up arms up and down the country. He used to take arms up and down the country. I smile now as mum used to spoil my brother. He was given butter whilst we were given my dream. My sister was nine years older than me. She was a sergeant in the WAFs and was in the barrage balloon unit in London. My oldest brother was a desert rat in Egypt. My other sister was maintaining Wellington bombers which were based at Sywell. Dad was a marine in the Dardanelles. I used to cycle for the ARP in Wellingborough. The unit was based behind what is now Wellingborough Library. There used to be cabins cabins there. It was my job to take the messages between the cabins, which were based all over Wellingborough. I remember German planes going to Coventry and the bombing of Coventry. I clearly remember the bank holiday Monday when a German bomber dropped a bomb in Market Street. At 6pm, the alert, alert was sounded in Wellingborough, but only moments later, a Dornier 217 flew over the town, dropping four... Um, dropping four 500 kilogram high explosive bombs. They also dropped bombs near the um, gas tanks in Wellingborough. I went into the town and saw all of the dust. Four women, two men and one boy were killed and 55 injured. There was also extensive damage to houses, factories, churches, hotels, pubs, cinemas as well as the headquarters broadcast relay services. The Yanks were coming. The 5th and 4th Half Regiment were based in Scotland. My sister went on to marry one of these bombers. They used to stay at the Bees Wing, which was near the swat to the Swan's Pool. All the American vehicles and the gear used were stored beneath the trees all along London Road. Of course, all along London Road was screened from the general public. Early War I remember when Mosley came with his black shirts and how he marched from Wellingborough School and up to the Cenotaph. The headmaster at the school was a communist. Many doesn't bring happiness. I also recall General de Gaulle visiting Findon Hall. He had a housekeeper who was a bit of a recluse. I believe that Winston Churchill only got to be Prime Minister because of the Labour Party. Clement Attlee had been in the War Office and was the commanding chief. I joined the Labour League of Youth when I was 18. We used to meet at Newcombe and Road Wellingborough. We couldn't vote until we were 21. Then, George Lindegren was an MP from 1945 and 1946. He was a junior minister in Parliament. The Lindegrens stayed at the Hind Hotel. Mrs Lindegren used to do her shopping in Wellingborough every Saturday. The YMCA, which was at the back of the Central Hall, and this is where was where we used to have gatherings for youth parliament. We used to have lively debates there. There was a potato famine at the time and the Tories would would roll potatoes down the central aisle, anything to cause a div- diversion. 
I was at Blackpool from 1955 until 57 and worked with children. I was often working on the beach and was able to use my drawing skills. I was actually based at Accrington, Lancashire. It was a weaving town. I lived in Claret Street. The citadel was next to what had been an entrance to Accrington Mines. The welcome sergeant was a Jamaican. I remember going to his home and that he had so much furniture. Little Mary Rooney was a very good collector for the cause. She was a saint. We used to have a meal with Lady Bancroft at her big house. We would sit each side of a long table with her at the head of the, head of the table. We used to have fish and chips served on a silver salver. We did a porpoise funeral, but no one else could help, so we had to organise this funeral ourselves. There was this poor little lady who had taken three daffodils for someone's garden. She had nothing at all. I officiated at numerous weddings over the years, mainly for Salvation Army people, but also dedicated at baptisms. The Salvation Army flag always had to be brought in. Ministerial training took about 18 months. My mother had a little star when I was ordained. The British Commissioner took the service. There were at least 200 people there and there was a band playing. I had designed the back scenery depicting flowers um, and crofts on the hill. I was given my first posting at Blackpool. I'd only recently recovered from a bout of pneumonia, so that was one of the main reasons why I was posted there. A lot of Scots was that were there. I was at Northern Ireland for three years. It was my job to go around the pubs in the same Fainet's quarters. Salvation Army was accepted there. I travelled down to Dublin by the train. I recall so many, many people standing on the steps of the cathedral. Kids were be begging there. I love the Belfast people, but the powers that be moved me on and I went whilst I was still at the top. I remember being at the ferry at midnight and saying goodbye. All the people from the Citadel were there. My next posting was at Bournemouth and was at the Boscombe Citadel. I used to be anxious as I'm not an, I'm not an orator. When I was taking services, I was taught to look over people's heads. But there was this Holy Joe character. He was always trying to correct me. Never, over the next 12 months, would, he either, would either he or his wife invite me to their home. They, there were retired majors and colonels. I used to have, have a lot to do, a lot of visiting to do. I didn't much care for the major. I was at the Bournemouth. I was at Bournemouth for twelve months, but during this time, I wasn't very happy. They all had good places and nice homes. Whilst I was a lodger and looked after myself, my landlady was lovely, but she always served me mashed potatoes. I went out to avoid her mashed potatoes. I was a youth officer and it was a, a rough place where gangs would form. They used to fight, but I would tell them that they had to get together or leave. I would say that it was probably my toughest job. I feel that I got very little support whilst I was there. I was demobbed at Lytham St Anne's. I remember going to a cafe and having a sausage breakfast. A new suit was provided for me and also my fair home. I was then at Wisbeach. Wherever you go, people are different. They were very strawberries and flowers people. I was there for the next 12 months. There was an, ele an election and I was walking down the road and saw two people walking towards me. One I recognised immediately as being George Brown. I couldn't belong to a political party whilst I was in the Salvation Army. George spoke to me and was very friendly. I thought he was a Prescott sort of person. 
He came in wearing a blue suit when I spoke at Rushton. He could make contact with people immediately. I remember Barb Castle, small and petite, with auburn hair. She was ferocious. From Wisbeach, I returned to Wellingborough, College Street, where I stayed with my sister, son and her husband, a share a room with my nephew, and then needed to find a job necessary for a reference. I attended an interview at Townsend Carriers, which was in High and Ferris. A manager, a manager arrived one morning at Pytchley Row, Church Street. I had already explained that I wasn't looking for a welfare job with his firm, and so had been truthful. I was offered and accepted employment with this firm and was there for some time. I then got a job at Greenwich, Greenwich where I worked um, for London County Council. I had 300 on my list but not children. My case files mainly worked around supporting those with learning disabilities, learning disabilities and mental illness problems. I soon discovered that many people were not getting their benefit entitlements. All this work was good training for me. I worked with all nationalities. We also helped deaf and dumb and blind clients and because of this I had to learn sign language. I used to have to go one day a week with regards training as well as learning about the organisations I would later come into contact with. As I was still living in Northamptonshire I would catch the 7am bus getting off at Eastfield Road and then catch the 725 from Wellingborough to St Pancras before catching a train from London Bridge to Woolwich or Greenwich, which was where most of my clients were. I was to remain in this job for next to three years. I then returned to Northampton in 1968. I then found employment as a social worker in health and welfare. I applied for the job as a manager at the Gladstone Centre in Northampton. This centre accepted people who were aged 16 or over. I remained in this job for the next two years. I then try, tried something really different when I applied for a job working at the Saudi Arabian Embassy where I, I explained that I had only experience rather than certificates. I worked in the capital, Riyadh, for the next 12 months. I worked as an advisor to the Ministry of Disabled People. There was no social life. I got a flat near to the zoo and the British Corporation compound with a Saudi guard at the gates. I found that making friend, a friend with this gate was with this guard was helpful as I managed to get into the embassy at weekends. I remember how they used to make their own drinks. There was an English boy there who owned a sports car which he would drive around the compound. There was also a man there who owned a bungalow. He was disabled. I had been living in a hotel which was opposite the American compound. I used to get my breakfast there. This compound also had its own cinema. I joined a Christian group. I would walk, but it wasn't a done thing then. They had coffee shops, but if I went into one, then I was viewed with suspicion. I got friends with a taxi driver, and it was him who helped me to get a flat. I got a bad ear infection, which was treated in a free hospital by, by free doctors. Pakistanis run show the Pakistanis run show the white, run the show. Whilst I was there, I stayed at two hotels. Sometimes I would go off with the Americans to watch the camel or horse racing. It was amusing watching people trying to get onto the camels. I was in a great big office. There was this fellow there who would just sit with his feet up on his desk reading his newspaper. He was supposed to be the boss. I would write out all of my reports. The young Pakistani was my secretary. My report would go to the minister who wanted to be a prince. He would go to see this prince. We would go to see this prince and have to drink his his foul coffee. They would always, always keep me waiting. 
The Saudis didn't seem to do the dirty work. King Faisal was assassinated. He had big blocks of flats, but his people refused to move into them, but instead, instead remained in their shacks. They were quite nice and made of tin. There used to be lovely Mercedes parked outside these shacks. After my year was up, I stayed in friends. I stayed in friends' flats in London. In order to find employment and a wage, I began working in a market garden nursery, and I remained there for the next nine months. I was promoted to be a foreman where I supervised loads of women. It was great. I then found employment as a manager at Willesden, this time working for older people. I was driving by then. I used to drive from Northamptonshire to Willesden every day. I remained there until I got a job at Lambeth, Lambeth as a manager. Mrs Mary Wilson opened the centre and I had the honour of um, of receiving her. Um, I remained at the centre for the next three years. There was a diverse membership of people there. I used to take this South London perky secretary to Park Lane, Pall Mall or Dolchester for a meal. I also remember meeting the governor of a prison who I became good friends with. It was all very interesting. We used to get free seats for matinees at theatres and we would go on special disabled coaches. We always had free seats. Everybody used to have a whale of a time. We used to stop at a Biggleswade pub where I had previously booked a meal, usually scamp and chips, and in winter we used to sit beside a great big fire. I still miss those happy times. We would also help people with dementia. Sometimes staff went with us. They were often included on the list. I would say that my proudest moment was when I got into welfare as I had no school certificates, etc. I was an elementary boy who managed to achieve something with my efforts and did this for 30 years. I moved to Finden in 1965, having resigned from being a Salvation Army officer at Wisbeach. Um, I enjoyed the social services part of the Salvation Army. I believe that my service... Servicing in such a post was the catalyst which encouraged me to apply for the social welfare officer at Greenwich, London. There were four candidates for this post. One was at university studying sociology, another was a welfare assistant and another was at college. There were eight people on the panel. I had by then had an interview with a senior social worker and I had also attended the William Booth College in London. I had been recommended by Wellingborough Salvation Army to do this course. As an officer, I'd been given an allowance by the Salvation Army. I couldn't be a member of any political party whilst being in the Salvation Army office. But when I retired at the age of 62, I became a member of the Labour Party. I will never change my politics. Nothing is perfect and no one is perfect. Life is temporary. Everything around you is temporary. So do what you can whilst you can. I don't know what will happen tomorrow. <coughs> if there wasn't a, a nearby school, we sh would be taught by someone at the nearest army camp. We had a lovely time when the Maharaja sent his elephants up to pick us up. We would sit on a seat on the elephant. It was great fun. Dad would go shooting. If a child had been taken by a wild animal, he would go out and shoot it. We had walls around the house. Two men with guns would always be on guard. We had a very earthquake at Quetta when many people were killed. 
My parents were away at the other one of the other camps. If it hadn't been for our servants who stole food for us, we could have starved. We didn't know where our father was for three years, as he had been sent to, or where he had been sent to. He didn't know where we were either. I think that the film Little Princess really reflected my life. My eldest brother and my stepbrother were captured by the Japanese. One was a gunnery officer uh, and was, the be was beaten. All his teeth and nails were taken out. When, when he refused to answer any of their questions during the interrogator interrogation, within 24 hours he was dead. We didn't know where he was buried. My younger brother was in hospital for two years. I realised that many people now live in, in Japan in 2014 were not even born then. I hope that nothing such as the awful experiences suffered by some prisoners then will ever be repeated. I was six months old when I was taken to India. Returning home 15 years later took us six weeks as we were being chased by submarines floating mines, everything. I recall how we never took our life jackets off. When we arrived home, we saw aunts and uncles that we never knew we had. I'd always dreamed of becoming a nurse when I left school, so when I left school at the age of 18, however, in the meantime, I had caught chicken pots and measles. When I went for my interview to become a nurse, I was informed that I wouldn't be fit enough to become a nurse. Of course, I was very disappointed. I immediately decided to join the army instead. I recall how I was given a Queen's shilling for food for a day. I still have this shilling. I ended up by being in charge of 24 girls. There were sometimes bad peas in the pod. I recall a girl with lovely blonde hair. I discovered that some of the girls were, bully were bullying this girl. I took the bullies to the train and put them on it. The bully girl threw herself in the river, into the river and drowned. Um, I had to identify the girl and then go on to tell her parents she was an only child. I'm aware that bullying still happens, even in 2014. It's essential that all bullies are reported and thrown out, wherever that this happens to be. I met my husband when I was in the army. He came to collect 15 of my girls for work, which was either in the cookhouse or the officers met mess. We got talking during the journey. He asked me to go to the pictures with him and I said yes. We married on January the 15th 1949. I'd left the army on January the 1st after being demobbed. I was quite unhappy to see the men getting suits, shoots, shirts, boots etc whilst women got a £10 note and clothing coupons. It was so unfair. We did the same job as men but got nothing in comparison. I was lucky in that I had support from my husband-to-be, Colin. We had two boys and two girls were born in 1949, 51, 55 and 62. I am happy to say that they have all done well in life. One of my sons worked in as a carpenter for Marriott and finished in a senior position. My other son passed his 11th plus to go to grammar school, but as his friends were going to secondary modern school, he went there instead. One of my sons breeds Norwich canaries. They are such beautiful birds. Many of the birds are bought by people living abroad. My son won't send them away, so the purchaser has to come and fetch the canary. My son writes in the Birds and Aviaries magazine. He often travels abroad to judge. We moved to Ringstead, Northamptonshire, soon after our marriage and remained in the same house until my health deteriorated. And we now moved, and then we moved to a bungalow in Ringstead. 
My husband had a bad fall when he was outside. Fortunately, boys from Thrapston School heard his cries for help as they were passing their, our home. They helped to bring him into our house, which I, for which I was very gra grateful. The Evening Telegraph reported these boys after I had contacted news newspaper. I feel that it is, it is important that kind actions are recognised. My husband and I had a good life together and shared the same interests of ballroom and Latin dancing. We danced, among other places, at Weymouth. We would stay for the week on holiday, developing our dancing skills, often being televised. Len Goldman taught us once. We would dance during the day and then be judged in the evening. I love coming to Candu Care here in Rawns. Due to osteoarthritis and rheumatism, I can't walk very far now, but this is a wonderful place to come to. If I didn't come here twice a week, all I would have would be four walls to look at. I miss my husband who died in 2012. The end of this story. Helen Ferry, born 1927. I was born at the army hospital as Dad was in the army. Dad started as a stable boy and ended as a lieutenant colonel. My father, William James Alfred Withers, was born in 1890. My mother, Edith Rose, was born at Farnborough near Aldershot in 1886. She was a nurse and also a matron in the army. My sister Betty was born in India in 1924. She was only three pounds at birth. She was a wonderful little girl. She passed her 11 plus and went to Bearwood Grammar School. It was while she was studying at Pinewoods that she died from TB. I had a stepbrother and two brothers. The eldest was also in the army and had the same name as my father. Withers is a real Birmingham name. I didn't attend a proper school for very long when I was in India. Sometimes I went to a convent. convent, convent. We moved every six months. When it was very hot... We went to schools up in the hills. I now, I now move on to the next story in Lives Less Ordinary. This is uh, Mona Wallace, who was born 1926, and, and it's on page 88 of Lives Less Ordinary. I was born in Barry, South Wales. From school, I did a shorthand and typing course. From this building, during the Second World War, we could see bombs being dropped on Barry Docks. I got a job with British Lime Film Distribution in Cardiff as a secretary. I met Ronald Walsh when my mother used to organise social gatherings for the servicemen at St Athen RAF base. After the war, we moved to London, where we lived for the next 62 years, Ronald's mum died and so we cared for his dad and his brother. We had a son, Anthony, who worked part-time in a shop called Lipton's. However, Anthony married and moved away. Later in life, I had a job at NatWest in central London and worked there until I retired. When my husband died, I moved to Rawns to be near my son and daughter-in-law. Later, I became unwell and they now take very good care of me. I look forward to coming to Candu Care now. Canduke was in Rawns. I now, I now move on to the next story in Lives Less Ordinary. This is uh, Mona Wallace, who was born 1926, and, and it's on page 88 of Lives Less Ordinary. 
I was born in Barry, South Wales. From school, I did a shorthand and typing course. From this building, during the Second World War, we could see bombs being dropped on Barry docks. I got a job with British Line Film Distribution in Cardiff as a secretary. I met Ronald Walsh when my mother used to organise social gatherings for the servicemen at St Athen RAF base. After the war, we moved to London, where we lived for the next 62 years. Ronald's mum died, and so we cared for his dad and his brother. We had a son, Anthony, who worked part-time in a shop called Lipton's. However, Anthony married and moved away. Later in life, I had a job at NatWest in central London and worked there until I retired. When my husband died, I moved to Rawns to be near my son and daughter-in-law. Later, I became unwell and they now take very good care of me. I look forward to coming to Kandu Care now. Kandu Care was in Rawns. Brenda Mab. I was born to Sydney Gamble and Mum Marion Elizabeth. Mum was born in Yarmouth, whilst my dad was born at Naseby. Mum was 96 when she died. Dad worked as a, grade, as a groundsman at the Bowling Green in Yarmouth, where we lived and where I was born. There were rows of houses. They were so close that you were able to reach over and touch the hand of the person who lived opposite you. We moved when I was age six. Sadly, all these houses were bombed. I was born in row number 100 and at house number six. I had two brothers. One brother is now about 95, but we lost my other brother some years ago. We all moved to the coast where mum ran a bed and breakfast place. During the summer, she would have holiday makers, whilst in the winter she would take in Scottish girls. These girls used to gut the herrings. There used to be troughs with the where the herrings were kept. The men, coopers, used to make the barrels used to store the herrings in. I went to Greenacre School for Girls, which was in Admiralty Road. I didn't like school. I managed to leave school just as the war um, started in 1939. Our family went to live with an aunt who lived in Heston, Middlesex, as a safer place to live. At the bottom of our garden, we had an Anderson shelter, which accommodated five of us. Our uncle used to keep watch. We also had shelters called Morrison's. Basically, this was like a great big table, which was reinforced. We would go there if we needed shelter quickly. I had a sister who was bombed out. When living in Coventry, they all ran for their lives then. I managed to complete just one day at my first job. I was working at McFarlane, which was a biscuit factory. The smell of baking biscuits made me feel sick. From there I went to work as a lift operator at the co-op in Middlesex. After this I worked for Pyrene, who made fire extinguishers. A relative manage manager man managed to get me a job at Technicolor. This was an American firm. A lot of our family were working there. I was a filing clerk for a while before going on to what I viewed as my proper job, doing films. There were only three colours that we worked with when we were when we were there, which were yellow, cyan and magnet magenta. The firm was a film firm was a film processing industry with a machine on the top floor. This was this machine was called IB. Anyway, blank films were run through, hence the colouring films. 
35 mm wide were then placed into cans, tins for shipping, shipment to various places. I worked in the shipping department and had to wear white gloves whilst checking the end fields to protect them. Although the war was on, I was very happy working at Technicolor. My lovely workmate, Joe, nicknamed Rusty, worked there. We had what were called vaults above ground and outside the factory, which was called a plant. There was quite a funny thing which happened once. We needed a couple of spare tins, so I went to the vault with a chap called Alf. We put the light on from outside and then went in. However, once we were inside, someone slammed the door and locked us both in. Sid's nickname was Bunk. He was called that as he was able to reach upper shelves in the plant by being bunked up. There was a field near where women were potato picking. Sadly, they were bombed and all the women killed. They were hit by doodle box bugs. You could only know that you were about to be bombed when an engine, when the engine cut out. I recall how I was in bed when I saw a doodle bug with a sound like a motorbike engine going off. When I saw a light in the tail, I realised that it wasn't for us. It was like landmines going off. I was cycling home with two lads when a landmine was dropped close to our house. The window glass fell, fell into our house and there was glass everywhere. When Dad arrived home, he wondered where his whiskey had gone. He was told that my mum and aunt had drunk it. The boys, Charles and Derek, who had cycled home with me, helped clear all the glass up. I first made contact with a Sirs serviceman and became a pen friend. His name, one of many, was in a newspaper. The lady who had organised it all sent me Henry Ernest to be my pen friend. I was about 18 when I started writing and he was 20. When I eventually met him for the first time, I had to wear some sort of ident identification. I wore a grey coat, had a black bag and carried a green chiffon scarf. No sooner as I got him home, he became mum's blue-eyed boy. We married on the 26th of March 1949 at St Peter's Church, Hounslow West. I had a wedding dress made out of satin that my boyfriend had brought back from Malta. We had one-tiered wedding cake handmade by my work colleague Pam, who was my only bridesmaid. I had a, a daughter, Pauline, who also lives in Rouen. She brings me to Candu Care. My other daughter, who is now 60, lives in Lincoln. One daughter works as a cleaner and the other works on the checkout at Kettering Tesco's. I have six grandsons and seven great-grandchildren. Some time ago I lived in Lincoln, but my son-in-law told his wife to arrange for me to live closer to them. I actually live in a self-contained room with a link to their house. I feel that I'm looked after so well by them. I've arranged to pay for both my daughters to have a holiday to Yarmouth this year. We are busy saving our tuppences, which we plan to spend in the slot machines there. I love coming to Saxon Hall, Rawns, as I have so many friends who also come here, where we are able to always taken care of. I used to enjoy knitting, but due to arthritis, I'm unable to knit any more. But I keep busy doing word search, crosswords, or watching Art Countdown. I love that too. Olive Jervis I was born at home to Mother Annie and Father Edward Leadham. Father was born in Birmingham in 1895 and Mum was born the same year. Dad worked for York's cutting soles for children's shoes before going to work at a shoe factory at the bottom of Sheep Street. Mum was employed by Chamberlain's, which was a slipper factory in Polk Road. 
She later worked for Gents, where she made gloves. When Dad wasn't working, he would be busy with his allotment or working in his garden. The garden field was in Chester Road. It was our job every Sunday to go and pick the vegetables for Sunday dinner. Mum always had a cut of biscuit, which she would boil. We'd then take it to the baker's in Winstanley Road, where, where a Yorkshire pudding would be cooked around it. My brother's job was to take a jug to the off-licence in New, New Common Road, where they would fetch a pint of beer. Sometimes they'd have a sip, so they would add water to the top of the jug up again as soon as they got home. Dad used to drive us to Galston near Yarmouth for our annual holidays. We'd stay in an apartment. Mum still had to shop and then do all the cooking, though. I left school aged 14 and worked in a factory. I disliked this. I was later called up to work as a nursing auxiliary. I had been a member of St John's Ambulance in Wellingborough. After six weeks training at Northampton General Hospital, I returned to Icebrook Hospital. I was later posted to a convalescent home at Winkhill, Staffordshire. I had to go to North Staff's rehabilitation to learn how to help dress the disabled and treat the army treat army boys from all over the place. I actually made a date with one of the boys I was nursing. I wondered why he didn't turn up. I later turned, learned the reason was when a young man who later became my husband Joe had warned this young man off. He told him how he planned to marry me. Joe was discharged but returned to see me. He used to stay in the village. One night I asked the night nurse to leave the back door unlocked but she must have forgotten and locked it. Joe started to throw stones up what he thought was her window. It was in fact the matron's window. I blushed like anything when I heard her complaining the following morning what a bad storm there must have been in the night. I was on leave when Wellingborough was brought, dropped, was bombed. One bomb dropped near All Saints Junior School. Another was dropped near the Crown and Anchor and another near the police station in Midland Road. I was working at Icebrook Hospital then. I dropped rice pudding that I was feeding someone with all over the place. I was really scared. We heard the bangs when Coventry was being bombed. The bomber planes flew over Wellingborough. The sky lit up. We had to carry babies, one in each arm, down concrete steps. All the babies from Icebrook were taken to St Mary's Hospital at Ketrim. I was scared of dropping the baby, so I decided to carry only one baby at a time. When the all-clear siren was sounded, we came up again. I married Joe at All Saints Church, Wellingborough. The war had finished by then. I was still at Stoke. Everyone was joyous. The hall, hall went to, we, we went to was packed. I remember listening to records like I'll Be With You in Apple Blossom Time and Strings of Pearls. Of course, I wore a, wore a nurse's uniform, which included black stockings. We kept a pair in our dormitory for any of us to use. I got on really well with the other girls. We just supported each other. We worked from eight in the morning until five at night, with two and a half days off. We nurses were lucky in that we had tins of fruit from South Africa. We also ate rice pudding every day. I soon got fed up with rice pudding, though. If we were off on Sundays, we'd take the injured men to the morning service in the private church. I think it was owned by Lord Rothschild. I borrowed a wedding dress from a colleague. My dad bought a chocolate wedding cake for me, whilst Matron made a two-tier ice cake. As was the, as was the tradition, I saved one. Alan was born on the March on March the fourteenth the following year.
I was 25 and Joe was 29. We couldn't get a council house, we lived with my parents. Alan was almost two before we got an Orlit house. It was lovely, of course, to have a, a house of our own, but it was very, it was so very cold, so we sorted out extra heating ourselves. Joe had bronchitis every year. Joe was by now working at Griggs at Wollaston. He used to do the studs on golf shoes. I remember that they were all colours and really and really bright. And of good quality. When Joe lived in Stoke, Stoke, he worked in the pottery industry, making plates. His job was to take all the roughness off, off the plates, and then they would be ready for glazing. He always said how much he liked this job. However, he chose Wellingborough to live because he felt that our town was a lovely market town, and I felt the same then. So much has changed over the years, with many buildings poured down in order to modernise. I remember going to the Regal Picture House in the Market Square. That was pulled down in order to make way for the supermarket. Briley's, I think. Then there was the lyrics in Midland Road. As well as pictures, there would be also be concerts on a Sunday, which we sometimes went to. Joe liked boxing and football. He always followed his hometown of Port Vale. After Alan was born, I worked at home. I made runners and car mats for a small businessman. He went on to employ three other machinists. It was better pay, but not as good as going out to work. I returned to Icebrook, Wellingborough when Alan was older. I mostly worked on the geriatric wards until I retired. We had a reasonable bus service which was run by United Counties. We had our first television in 1953 so that we could watch the coronation. I think we were the first in the street to have a telly. All the kids from our street watched with us, all of them waving, waving Union Jacks. I made them all sandwiches. Of course, I also remember the funeral of King George prior to this day. Everyone wore black then. Everyone was shot the day Edward abdicated the throne. Alan went to Croyland Road Infant School and then on to John Lee. It was such a shame when it was pulled down. We used to like carnivals, which were then held at Bassett's Park. We'd all dance around the bandstand. Later in the evening, everyone followed the band down to Wellingborough Station. I really loved the sight, smell, in fact, everything about steam trains. We all used to go to Peterborough and sit on the, on the bank near the station and then watch the trains come in and go in. Our sons would be taking the numbers of the trains. We always used to take a packed lunch. At other times, Alan and his friends used to bike somewhere near Northampton. If they were late, Joe and I would go to meet them and then bring them and their bikes home in our car. I live in a lovely flat in Shaftesbury House. Joe and I moved here in 1986. Joe loved it. It's really quiet without Joe. He died in 2002, without, the de without doubt the saddest day of my life. I'm 91 now and happy living here. The other tenants are so good and willing to help at any time. We have a warden who works part-time to help us. When when she is not there, we have an on-call system to help in, a, in, in an emergency. Mem memory from Alan. 
In the days before emulsion came into the market, there would be distemper. We had an outside toilet. Every year, during the winter, the water would be turned off. I would have been about five years of age. I found this tin, which I thought contained water, and I peed in this for a few weeks. Dad, unaware of my activities, painted this novel mixture onto the toilet walls. It took some time to discover the reason for this smell. My granddad, Ken Wells, worked in the shoe industry. The factory on, was on Doddington Road, where the car park now is. My granddad bought me a plastic boat, which I loved. He used to have an allotment in Brook Street East, which is where Saxby's factory used to be. That is the end of Olive's story. Thank you, Olive. My next contributor is Margaret Tyrebuck, Buck, born 1920. Dad was a farmer. Bradley's farm was at Waldingfield near Sudbury, Suffolk. My mum had been a district nurse before she married. Mum was born in 1884. She was one of 14 and she had a twin sister. Father was born in 1882. He owned a small holding at Sudbury. He served in the First World War but he didn't talk about it. I remember, however, finding a postcard that he must have sent to Mum. It had a picture of a nurse saying, I'm very weak. Can I lean on you, please, nurse? I had an older brother and a younger brother. I went to the council school at Sudbury and left, left school at the age of 14. Mum died four days after my 14th birthday. Upon leaving school, I helped Dad on the farm. Local people were employed to help us. When I was about 17, the daughter of the gatekeeper, who lived next door, asked me if I was interested in a job of a kitchen maid at a big house which was a few miles away. I found it to be hard work. We had to be in the kitchen at 6.30am. I did the scrubbing of the kitchen floors and the worktops. We seldom saw the actual family. I had half a day a week and one Sunday in a month off. I used to cycle home, which was 10 miles away, every week. Of course we used to cycle everywhere. We only used to have two hours off in the afternoon and then we would be back in the kitchen again. There would be shooting parties, etc. to cater for. We used to climb into our beds exhausted by about 10 o'clock. We didn't have bedrooms but instead individual cubicles in a big room. I got on well with the rest of the staff. Um, I would say that programmes we watch on the television are glamorised more than what life was really like for people who were in service then. I had two or three similar jobs. When war broke out, I volunteered for munitions. I finished up at Hatfield Aircraft Factory, where I was in, on inspections. It was my job to inspect the riveting. The riveting. I also proofloaded, which meant examining cables, which had a link at the end. I was billeted at Watford. We were lucky in that we only had one bomb which landed on us, near us. I was at the same job until I got married was it, and was introduced to my boyfriend, William Lawrence, by his cousin, who worked at the same factory as me. He had served in the de desert and he used to say I had to have sand with everything. We married May the 22nd, 1948 in Boxford, Suffolk, near where my father and brother lived. I hired my wedding dress. I was lucky to have a cake as my dad's sister ran a bakery. We had three sons born in 1948 
51 and 58. When my sons were at school, I was employed as a classroom assistant at Christchurch School, London. I was either doing playground duty or taking the little milk bottles of milk around to every classroom. I used to love that job. I live with my eldest son and his wife in Rawns now. One son lives in London, the other in Shrewsbury. I now love to knit squares for blankets. I love to do crosswords and puzzles. I'm going on holiday with my son next week. The next contribution comes from Jim, born 1920. I met Jim at Burton Latimer Library. Uh, I, I was impressed by his liveliness and his bright mind and his brilliant sense of humour. Uh, and it was a lovely place to be at Burton Library and still is. Um, so Jim, 1920. My mother, Dorothy May Carter, was born in Chalfont, St Giles, Buckinghamshire, in 1884. My father, James Vaughan, was born in 1884. Mum met Dad when she visited her relatives in London. Dad worked as a glazier. I believe he got himself in a bit of trouble when he was a young man, but to avoid a brief spell in prison, he, he joined the army. He wanted to join the cavalry because he had been working in stables close to where he lived, but the recruitment sergeant decided he should join the infantry instead. When he left the army, he was kept in the army reserve. Dad then got taken on by the Metropolitan Railway at Baker Street. This was the first underground railway in the world. His job was to maintain the buildings, mainly painting. He continued with this job until Germany declared war. Dad later told me that he was in France in 48 hours. It was at Mons in Belgium. There were hundreds of men to begin with. This was the first time that my dad had ever had to fire a rifle to kill. The battle continued for three days. A lot of men were lost. Orders were given to retreat. They retreated for 14 days until they were on the outskirts of Paris. A French general realised that the left flank of Germany was weak, so he commandeered all the taxis in Paris to be filled with infantry men aiming to prevent the Germans from advancing. Germans, French and British started to dig their own trenches. There were many casualties. Mr Churchill thought of, of a plan to attack by going through the Dardanelles in order to attack the Germans. Battle-hardened troops were put into boats and steamships. The men were told to march up and down the beach. They were told to fire between the legs of the enemy, not directly at them. However, this proved futile. The men didn't have enough supplies and the clothing they wore was insufficient. Sometimes two or three men from the same family would be killed. After the war, Dad returned to the Metropolitan Railway. Everyone was so poor then, women would sing in the streets. A lot of men were sleeping on benches near the river. The organ grinder would be giving out a tune. Ramsay MacDonald became the first Labour Prime Minister, but after 18 months he resigned. Child payments were later cut from one shilling and sixpence to one shilling a week. Adult payments were also reduced. They followed the Jarrow marches. They had to pass a medical before they were allowed to join the march from Jarrow to London. The Jarrow march was not backed by a political party, but was formed by all classes of people. All people wanted to do was to work. 
but there was no work available. Poor people were stigmatised then, just as they are stigmatised now. There were soup kitchens in the schools. You could smell the soup being cooked. We lived in a small property. We went with seven shillings a week. Dad had been supplied with a blue serge suit after he was discharged from the army. The pawning of this suit was our rent money. Mum would pawn the suit on Monday to seven shillings, then get the suit back on Friday. Mum and Dad would go to the pub for a drink on Saturdays. Beer would be four pence a pint. The following Monday would see them back in the queue to pawn the suit again. The queue was always long. Everyone was poor then. Mum and Dad were good parents in spite of the poverty they faced. They then followed the Spanish flu. It was said that more people died from the flu than did in the Great War. Mum and Dad lost twins aged three to this flu. I had short trousers and jumpers but no underwear. Rickets and tuberculosis were rife. There was no medical help for these conditions really, apart from being sent to open air hospitals. I have an older sister called Dorothy and a younger sister called Margaret. My younger sister died in 1941 of rheumatic fever. She was 17. Funerals were paid for by the month. You could be buried for £8. When the Nash assistance came in, it was £28 to pay for a coffin. Many people were buried in pauper's graves then. I used to play a lot of street games as a boy, such as marbles and cricket. I used to use the lamppost as cricket stumps, but would run into the house when the police arrived. I went to bridge school, NW10. I'd walk to school. I loved to read when I was at school. In fact, I learnt to read by reading the Bible. I'd stand at the front of the class and deliver the passage. Children who weren't as confident as me would be, would be given the cane, a grown man given a child the cane. If I pulled my hand back, then I'd get another stroke. I had a nice headmistress who was very good, as she would just slap me. You started at standard one, but wouldn't move to the next until next standard until you were proficient at level one. Special needs schools didn't exist then. There were 43 children in my class. Boys in senior school would do carpentry whilst the girls did cooking and needlework. I had to be able to read the ruler. If my work reached the required standard, then I'd, be a, I'd get a stamp on my card. A lot of children left school without being able to read or write. I met a young girl at Harrow on the hill recently. She was aged about 23 or 24. She told me that she couldn't read. I don't think she had enough money to pay for her train fare, so I gave her some money. It was a disgrace that children left school without being able to read then, just as it is a disgrace now. Teaching has changed so much from when I was a child. I learned by rote. I also think going to watch silent movies helped me to read. Remember how there, were bubble, there was a bubble with the words in it on the screen. I could read well by the time I was age seven. I remembered Cliffhanger and Walter Milley, cowboy and, cowboy and Western films, as well as Charlie Chaplin. All his movements were to mine, but you could also buy small films when they were shifting pianos. They really made me laugh. When we were living in the first house, we bought the Evening Standard. The only book we had in our house when I was a boy was the Bible and a book on military law. Dad could remember everything he read in this book. He could read, but he couldn't spell. Before Mum married Dad, she was living in a tied cottage with her family. Her father was a farm labourer. Mum told me how they had deaf and dumb people as neighbours. Mum used to help out there, so she learned 
sign language. Our family moved into a lovely council house in the early 30s. It was a Canadian model which was shipped to England. There wasn't a brick on this house. It had four bedrooms and I shared a bed with my brother until I was older. I think that they were lucky to live in, I think we were lucky to live in a nice home. We had a separate bathroom and toilet. There was a 19 foot front garden and a 20 foot back garden. We lived at number number one Wembley, which was by the River Brent. It's funny looking back, but this, there was this chap who had a big garden than us. He paid a penny a week extra rent money for this privilege. We also had 40 units of free electricity every week. However, a third of Dad's wages would be taken in rent money. Our lives were different then. The green grocery van visited the street weekly. The butcher would sell all his meat late on Saturday at a greatly reduced price. Mum used to buy tea bone of beef. We'd have a Sunday roast, cold meat on Monday, then on Tuesday, Mum would make a stew. Everything, including onions, would go into the pot. It smelled lovely. The butcher would deliver a, a block of ice, blocks of ice regularly. These blocks would be delivered wrapped in sacking to keep the ice cold. A van came round the street, street every week selling carbolic substance, which was used to keep everything clean in the houses. The rag and bone man called around every day. Wives used to love going out and finding a bargain whenever the rag and bone man called. However, visits were later reduced to once a week, one a week when new regulations were introduced. The milkman would come around with his pony every day. There would be a big containers on the back of his trolley where the milk was kept. Women would take out their measuring jugs to fetch the milk, their milk from him. Another of my earlier memories is of a group of lads clubbing together to buy this old car. It had a solid, it had solid rubber tyres. The boys must have spent ages trying to make it roadworthy. Another funny memory I have, I have is of private bus companies racing to get to collect their passengers before other bus companies got there. This practice came to the end after the end of after the London Transport Company was formed. I left school at 14 and went into the engineering business. I worked for Wavers Engineering Minerva, Minerva Road, Wilston. I didn't like this job, so I left after about four months. I then got a job at BEA Wood Royal, Wood Royal Sovereign Pencil Company. This firm processed wood from Africa. Pencils have different woods. Wood is put into solutions, then into gas ovens. Wood was delivered by lorries. It was pushed into sheet metal sheds where it was stored in metal holders containing a solution and then put into gas machines. The heat was turned on for 34 hours. Afterwards, it was put into brick-built ovens and then before being before being taken to the Royal Sovereign Factory for, for pencil making. I was employed there for about two years. The next contribution comes from Jim, born 1920. I met Jim at Burton Latimer Library. Um, I, I was impressed by his liveliness and his bright mind and his brilliant sense of humour. Uh, and it was a lovely place to be at Burton Library and still is. Um, so Jim, 1920. My mother, Dorothy May Carter, was born in Chalfont, St Giles, Buckinghamshire, in 1884. My father, James Vaughan, was born in 1884. 
Mum met Dad when she visited her relatives in London. Dad worked as a glazier. I believe he got himself in a bit of trouble when he was a young man. But to avoid a brief spell in prison, he, he joined the army. He wanted to join the cavalry because he had been working in stables close to where he lived. But the recruitment sergeant decided he should join the infantry instead. When he left the army, he was kept in the army reserve. Dad then got taken on by the Metropolitan Railway at Baker Street. This was the first underground railway in the world. His job was to maintain the buildings, mainly painting. He continued with this job until Germany declared war. Dad later told me that he was in France in 48 hours. It was at Mons in Belgium. There were hundreds of men to begin with. This was the first time that my dad had ever had to fire a rifle to kill. The battle continued for three days. A lot of men were lost. Orders were given to retreat. They retreated for 14 days until they were on the outskirts of Paris. A French general realised that the left flank of Germany was weak, so he commandeered all the taxis in Paris to be filled with infantry men aiming to prevent the Germans from advancing. Germans, French and British started to dig their own trenches. There were many casualties. Mr Churchill thought of a plan to attack by going through the Dardanelles in order to attack the Germans. Battle-hardened troops were put into boats and steamships. The men were told to march up and down the beach. They were told to fire between the legs of the enemy, not directly at them. However, this proved futile. The men didn't have enough supplies and the clothing they wore was insufficient. Sometimes two or three men from the same family would be killed. After the war, Dad returned to the Metropolitan Railway. Everyone was so poor then, women would sing in the streets. A lot of men were sleeping on benches near the river. The organ grinder would be given out a tune. Ramsay MacDonald became the first Labour Prime Minister, but after 18 months he resigned. Child payments were later cut from one shilling and sixpence to one shilling a week. Adult payments were also reduced. They followed the Jarrow marches. They had to pass a medical before they were allowed to join the march from Jarrow to London. The Jarrow march was not backed by a political party, but was formed by all classes of people. All people wanted to do was to work, but there was no work available. Poor people were stigmatised then, just as they are stigmatised now. There were soup kitchens in the schools. You could smell the soup being cooked. We lived in a small property. The rent was seven shillings a week. Dad had been supplied with a blue serge suit after he was discharged from the army. The pawning of this suit was our rent money. Mum would pawn the suit on Monday to seven shillings, then get the suit back on Friday. Mum and Dad would go to the pub for a drink on Saturdays. Beer would be four pence a pint. The following Monday would see them back in the queue to pawn the suit again. The queue was always long. Everyone was poor then. Mum and Dad were good parents in spite of the poverty they faced. They then followed the Spanish flu. It was said that more people died from the flu than did in the Great War. Mum and Dad lost twins aged three to this flu. I had short trousers and jumpers but no underwear. Rickets and tuberculosis were rife. There was no medical help for these conditions really. Apart from being sent to open air hospitals, I have an older sister called Dorothy and a younger sister called Margaret. 
My younger sister died in 1941 of rheumatic fever. She was 17. Funerals were paid for by the month. You could be buried for £8. When the Nash assistants came in, it was £28 to pay for a coffin. coffin. Many people were buried in paupers' graves then. I used to play a lot of street games as a boy, such as marbles and cricket. I used to use the lamppost as cricket stumps, but would run into the house when the police arrived. I went to bridge school, NW10. I'd walk to school. I loved to read when I was at school. In fact, I learnt to read by reading the Bible. I'd stand at the front of the class and deliver the passage. Children who weren't as confident as me would be, would be given the cane. A grown man given a child the cane. If I pulled my hand back, then I'd get another stroke. I had an ice headmistress who was very good, as she would just slap me. You started at standard one, but wouldn't move to the next until next standard until you were proficient at level one. Special needs schools didn't exist then. There were 43 children in my class. Boys in senior school would do carpentry whilst the girls did cooking and needlework. I had to be able to read the ruler. If my work reached the required standard, then I'd, be a, I'd get a stamp on my card. A lot of children left school without being able to read or write. I met a young girl at Harrow on the hill recently. She was aged about 23 or 24. She told me that she couldn't read. I don't think she had enough money to pay for her train fare, so I gave her some money. It was a disgrace that children left school without being able to read then, just as it is a disgrace now. Teaching has changed so much from when I was a child. I learned by rote. I also think going to watch silent movies helped me to read. Remember how there were bubble, There was a bubble with the words in it on the screen. I could read well by the time I was age seven. I remember Cliffhanger and Walter Milley, Cowboy and, Cowboy and Western films, as well as Charlie Chaplin. All these movements were to mine, but you could also buy small films when they were shifting pianos. They really made me laugh. When we were living in the first house, we bought the Evening Standard. The only book we had in our house when I was a boy was the Bible and a book on military law. Dad could remember everything he read in this book. He could read, but he couldn't spell. Before Mum married Dad, she was living in a tied cottage with her family. Her father was a farm labourer. Mum told me how they had deaf and dumb people as neighbours. Mum used to help out there, so she learned sign language. Our family moved into a lovely council house in the early 30s. It was a Canadian mother which was shipped to England. There wasn't a brick on the, this house. It had four bedrooms and I shared a bed with my brother until I was older. I think that they were lucky to live in... I think we were lucky to live in a nice home. We had a separate bathroom and toilet. There was a 19-foot front garden and a 20-foot back garden. We lived at number, number one Wembley, which was by the River Brent. It's funny looking back, but this, there was this chap who had a big garden in us. He paid a penny a week extra rent money for this privilege. We also had 40 units of free electricity every week. However, a third of Dad's wages would be taken in rent money. Our lives were different then. A green grocery van visited the street weekly. The butcher would sell all his meat late on Saturday at a greatly reduced price. Mum used to buy tea bone of beef. We'd have a Sunday roast, cold meat on Monday, then on Tuesday, Mum would make a stew. Everything, including onions, would go into the pot. It smelled lovely. The butcher would deliver a, 
a block of ice, blocks of ice regularly. These blocks would be delivered wrapped in sacking to keep the ice cold. A van came round the street, street every week selling carbolic substance, which was used to keep everything clean in the houses. The rag and bone man called around every day. Wives used to love going out and finding a bargain whenever the rag and bone man called. However, visits were later reduced to once a week, one a week, when new regulations were introduced. The milkman would come around with his pony every day. There would be a big containers on the back of his trolley where the milk was kept. Women would take out their measuring jugs to fetch the milk, their milk from him. Another of my earlier memories is of a group of lads clubbing together to buy this old car. It had a solid, it had solid rubber tyres. The boys must have spent ages trying to make it roadworthy. Another funny memory I have, I have is of private bus companies racing to get to collect their passengers before other bus companies got there. This practice came to the end after the end of after the London Transport Company was formed. I left school at 14 and went into the engineering business. I worked for Wavers Engineering Minerva, Minerva Road, Wilston. I didn't like this job, so I left after about four months. I then got a job at BEA Wood Royal Wood Royal Sovereign Pencil Company. This firm processed wood from Africa. Pencils have different woods. Wood is put into solutions, then into gas ovens. Wood was delivered by lorries. It was pushed into sheet metal sheds where it was stored in metal holders containing a solution and then put into gas machines. The heat was turned on for 34 hours. Afterwards, it was put into brick-built ovens and then before being, before being taken to the Royal Sovereign Factory for, for pencil making. I was employed there for about two years. At the start of the Second World War, I had to go for a medical checkup at Acton Drill Hall. I recall that this was near ironmongery and oil shops. The result of this was me getting a letter to post in the post to go to a private practice in Wimpole Street. I was ushered in to see this doctor. He even had his own X-ray machine. I was given another physical examination. I wasn't up to service, not even being a Bevan boy. I then worked for Victoria Machine Tool Company in North, Ap North Apton. I had been doing vertical drilling before. My job was now to do drill castings, making vertical drills for milling machines. It was a family firm. I was there for about 32 years. I was made redundant and was without a job for about two months. My son-in-law helped me to get a job at General Motors Kingsbury. I was then forced to look around for another job and was lucky enough to find job, a job working at the Heinz Brew Factory. It was a good firm to work for, as they had a canteen which opened from 6.30am until 10am, then opened again from 12 until 2, then 5 until 6.30pm. It was a factory that was open all day and night. The factory was next to the Grand Union Canal. In the early days, the boats even transported live turtles to make turtle soup. In the same factory were women who were putting olives into jars. The women were not allowed to talk. They had huge barrels of vinegar, also brought in on barges. The factory also had its barges bringing in things like baked beans. 
They had about six lines of beans from small to large. I remember that there were half a pound tins of beans with pork fat on the ton, top. Mum used to buy a tin for me. I recall how they used to have little lines running above where, that, where we worked. All the tins would be moving along at these lines. Mr Hines, who was a Quaker, was a very generous man and had started his business in America, growing horseradish, etc., and he would sell his produce on the markets. He must have done very well doing this. In 1920, he came to London on a business trip. The businessmen he met bought up all his stock. The factory had a doctor and five nurses to help to look after everyone. There used to be five tea rooms. If you started work early, then you would be given a free breakfast. It would be very handy for single people being able to get their meals in the factory canteen. Every Christmas, people would be given a gift. Every five years, you were given a booklet with things that you could choose as a gift. It proved very useful for young people who were looking at setting up home and getting married. I married Mrs Doreen Gower at Williston Register Office in 1947. She had three boys. I met her when she was working as a capstan lathe operator at the Victoria Tool Company. She had been living in Tottenham until she got bombed out. We had three daughters and a son. Our first child was born in 1947. She now lives in Bushy near Watford. Our second daughter was born in 1949. She now lives in Pinner. Our next daughter was born in December 1951. We then had a son born December the 31st, 1955. He lives in Burton Latimer. I have been living in Burton Latimer since 1993. I have 10 grandchildren. My family generally come up to visit me every three or four months. I was in hospital in October for a few weeks. When I was discharged, I stayed with my daughter in Bushy for a while. My wife died a day after Boxing Day, 1985, which also was the year that I retired. She died following a heart attack. I moved to Burton Latimer when London felt too dangerous to remain. We had been burgled twice and two house bricks had been thrown through the windows. I had an elder brother who lived in Harrow. His wife had died. I would go and visit him and he then moved in with me. I love Burton. It feels free from crime with no muggings or stealing of cars. I still love to read and love to visit Burton Library, so do I, Jim. A really lovely and welcoming place. I live from day to day now. I love to talk to older people who live here. I would say that there are an awful lot of transient people living here. I met a bloke a few years ago who told me how he had a Distinguished Conduct Medal. He, he says how his last operation was to free prisoners on, of war on the borders of Poland in Stettin. When they had polished the German guards off, it was tea time. He said to them, isn't it about time you went home? This man drank Mannion's pale in brown ale, which made me decide that I would like to sit next to him. We belong to the RAC club. I think that they built five, uh, five apartments there. That's the end of um, Jim's story, but another really obviously valuable one. The next contribution comes from Jim, born 1920. I met Jim at Burton Latimer Library. Uh, I, I was impressed by his liveliness and his 
bright mind and his brilliant sense of humour. Uh, and it was a lovely place to be at Burton Library and still is. Um, so Jim, 1920. My mother, Dorothy May Carter, was born in Chalfont, St Giles, Buckinghamshire in 1884. My father, James Vaughan, was born in 1884. Mum met Dad when she visited her relatives in London. Dad worked as a glazier. I believe he got himself in a bit of trouble when he was a young man. But to avoid a brief spell in prison, he, he joined the army. He wanted to join the cavalry because he had been working in stables close to where he lived. But the recruitment sergeant decided he should join the infantry instead. When he left the army, he was kept in the army reserve. Dad then got taken on by the Metropolitan Railway at Baker Street. This was the first underground railway in the world. His job was to maintain the buildings, mainly painting. He continued with this job until Germany declared war. Dad later told me that he was in France in 48 hours. It was at Mons in Belgium. There were hundreds of men to begin with. This was the first time that my dad had ever had to fire a rifle to kill. The battle continued for three days. A lot of men were lost. Orders were given to retreat. They retreated for 14 days until they were on the outskirts of Paris. A French general realised that the left flank of Germany was weak, so he commandeered all the taxis in Paris to be filled with infantry men aiming to prevent the Germans from advancing. Germans, French and British started to dig their own trenches. There were many casualties. Mr Churchill thought of, of a plan to attack by going through the Dardanelles in order to attack the Germans. Battle-hardened troops were put into boats and steamships. The men were told to march up and down the beach. They were told to fire between the legs of the enemy, not directly at them. However, this proved futile. The men didn't have enough supplies and the clothing they wore was insufficient. Sometimes two or three men from the same family would be killed. After the war, Dad returned to the Metropolitan Railway. Everyone was so poor then, women would sing in the streets. A lot of men were sleeping on benches near the river. The organ grinder would be given out a tune. Ramsay MacDonald became the first Labour Prime Minister but after 18 months he resigned. Child payments were later cut from one shilling and sixpence to one shilling a week. Adult payments were also reduced. They followed the Jarrow marches. They had to pass a medical before they were allowed to join the march from Jarrow to London. The Jarrow march was not backed by a political party, but was formed by all classes of people. All people wanted to do was to work, but there was no work available. Poor people were stigmatised then, just as they are stigmatised now. There were soup kitchens in the schools. You could smell the soup being cooked. We lived in a small property. The rent was seven shillings a week. Dad had been supplied with a blue serge suit after he was discharged from the army. The pawning of this suit was our rent money. Mum would pawn the suit on Monday to seven shillings, then get the suit back on Friday. Mum and Dad would go to the pub for a drink on Saturdays. Beer would be four pence a pint. The following Monday would see them back in the queue to pawn the suit again. The queue was always long. Everyone was poor then. Mum and Dad were good parents in spite of the poverty they faced. They then followed the Spanish flu. 
It was said that more people died from the flu than did in the Great War. Mum and Dad lost twins aged three to this flu. I had short trousers and jumpers but no underwear. Rickets and tuberculosis were rife. There was no medical help for these conditions really, apart from being sent to open air hospitals. I have an older sister called Dorothy and a younger sister called Margaret. My younger sister died in 1941 of rheumatic fever. She was 17. Funerals were paid for by the month. You could be buried for £8. When the Nash assistants came in, it was £28 to pay for a coffin. coffin. Many people were buried in paupers' graves then. I used to play a lot of street games as a boy, such as marbles and cricket. I used to use the lamppost as cricket stumps, but would run into the house when the police arrived. I went to bridge school, NW10. I'd walk to school. I loved to read when I was at school. In fact, I learnt to read by reading the Bible. I'd stand at the front of the class and deliver the passage. Children who weren't as confident as me would be would be given the cane, a grown man giving a child the cane. If I pulled my hand back, then I'd get another stroke. I had a nice headmistress who was very good, as she would just slap me. You started at standard one, but wouldn't move to the next until next standard until you were proficient at level one. Special needs schools didn't exist then. There were 43 children in my class. Boys in senior school would do carpentry whilst the girls did cooking and needlework. I had to be able to read the ruler. If my work reached the required standard, then I'd, be a, I'd get a stamp on my card. A lot of children left school without being able to read or write. I met a young girl at Harrow on the hill recently. She was aged about 23 or 24. She told me that she couldn't read. I don't think she had enough money to pay for her train fare, so I gave her some money. It was a disgrace that children left school without being able to read then, just as it is a disgrace now. Teaching has changed so much from when I was a child. I learned by rote. I also think going to watch silent movies helped me to read. Remember how there were bubble? There was a bubble with the words in it on the screen. I could read well by the time I was age seven. I remembered Cliffhanger and Walter Milley, cowboy and, cowboy and Western films, as well as Charlie Chaplin. All his movements were to mime, but you could also buy small films when they were shifting pianos. They really made me laugh. When we were living in the first house, we bought the Evening Standard. The only book we had in our house when I was a boy was the Bible and a book on military law. Dad could remember everything he read in this book. He could read, but he couldn't spell. Before Mum married Dad, she was living in a tied cottage with her family. Her father was a farm labourer. Mum told me how they had deaf and dumb people as neighbours. Mum used to help out there, so she learned sign language. Our family moved into a lovely council house in the early 30s. It was a Canadian model which was shipped to England. There wasn't a brick on this house. It had four bedrooms and I shared a bed with my brother until I was older. I think that they were lucky to live in, I think we were lucky to live in a nice home. We had a separate bathroom and toilet. There was a 19 foot front garden and a 20 foot back garden. We lived at number, number one Wembley, which was by the River Brent. It's funny looking back, but this, there was this chap who had a big garden than us. He paid a penny a week extra rent money for this privilege. We also had 40 units of free electricity every week. However, a third of Dad's wages would be taken in rent money.
Our lives were different then. The greengrocery van visited the street weekly. The butcher would sell all his meat late on Saturday at a greatly reduced price. Mum used to buy T-bone of beef. We'd have a Sunday roast, cold meat on Monday, then on Tuesday, Mum would make a stew. Everything, including onions, would go into the pot. It smelled lovely. The butcher would deliver a, a block of ice, blocks of ice regularly. These blocks would be delivered wrapped in sacking to keep the ice cold. A van came round the street, street every week selling carbolic substance, which was used to keep everything clean in the houses. The rag and bone man called around every day. Wives used to love going out and finding a bargain whenever the rag and bone man called. However, visits were later reduced to once a week, one a week when new regulations were introduced. The milkman would come around with his pony every day. There would be a big containers on the back of his trolley where the milk was kept. Women would take out their measuring jugs to fetch the milk, their milk from him. Another of my earlier memories is of a group of lads clubbing together to buy this old car. It had a solid, it had solid rubber tyres. The boys must have spent ages trying to make it roadworthy. Another funny memory I have, I have is of private bus companies racing to get to collect their passengers before other bus companies got there. This practice came to the end after the end of after the London Transport Company was formed. I left school at fourteen and went into the engineering business. I worked for Wavers Engineering Minerva, Minerva Road, Wilston. I didn't like this job, so I left after about four months. I then got a job at BEA Wood Royal Wood Royal Sovereign Pencil Company. This firm processed wood from Africa. Pencils have different woods. Wood is put into solutions, then into gas ovens. Wood was delivered by lorries. It was pushed into sheet metal sheds where it was stored in metal holders containing a solution and then put into gas machines. The heat was turned on for 34 hours. Afterwards, it was put into brick-built ovens and then poured before being before being taken to the Royal Sovereign Factory for, for pencil making. I was employed there for about two years. The next contribution comes from Jim, born 1920. I met Jim at Burton Latimer Library. Um, I, I was impressed by his liveliness and his bright mind and his brilliant sense of humour. Uh, and it was a lovely place to be at Burton Library. And still is. Um, so Jim, 1920. My mother, Dorothy May Carter, was born in Chalfont, St Giles, Buckinghamshire, in 1884. My father, James Vaughan, was born in 1884. Mum met Dad when she visited her relatives in London. Dad worked as a glazier. I believe he got himself in a bit of trouble when he was a young man. But to avoid a brief spell in prison, he, he joined the army. He wanted to join the cavalry because he had been working in stables close to where he lived. But the recruitment sergeant decided he should join the infantry instead. When he left the army, he was kept in the army reserve. Dad then got taken on by the Metropolitan Railway at Baker Street. This was the first underground railway in the world. His job was to maintain the buildings, mainly painting. He continued with this job until Germany declared war. Dad later told me that he was in France in 48 hours. 
was at Mons in Belgium. There were hundreds of men to begin with. This was the first time that my dad had ever had to fire a rifle to kill. The battle continued for three days. A lot of men were lost. Orders were given to retreat. They retreated for 14 days until they were on the outskirts of Paris. A French general realised that the left flank of Germany was weak, so he commandeered all the taxis in Paris to be filled with infantry men aiming to prevent the Germans from advancing. Germans, French and British started to dig their own trenches. There were many casualties. Mr Churchill thought of, of a plan to attack by going through the Dardanelles in order to attack the Germans. Battle-hardened troops were put into boats and steamships. The men were told to march up and down the beach. They were told to fire between the legs of the enemy, not directly at them. However, this proved futile. The men didn't have enough supplies and the clothing they wore was insufficient. Sometimes two or three men from the same family would be killed. After the war, Dad returned to the Metropolitan Railway. Everyone was so poor then. Women would sing in the streets. A lot of men were sleeping on benches near the river. The organ grinder would be giving out a tune. Ramsay MacDonald became the first Labour Prime Minister, but after 18 months he resigned. Child payments were later cut from one shilling and sixpence to one shilling a week. Adult payments were also reduced. They followed the Jarrow marches. They had to pass a medical before they were allowed to join the march from Jarrow to London. The Jarrow March was not backed by a political party, but was formed by all classes of people. All people wanted to do was to work, but there was no work available. Poor people were stigmatised then, just as they are stigmatised now. There were soup kitchens in the schools. You could smell the soup being cooked. We lived in a small property. The rent was seven shillings a week. Dad had been supplied with a blue serge suit after he was discharged from the army. The pawning of this suit was our rent money. Mum would pawn the suit on Monday to seven shillings, then get the suit back on Friday. Mum and Dad would go to the pub for a drink on Saturdays. Beer would be four pence a pint. The following Monday would see them back in the queue to pawn the suit again. The queue was always long. Everyone was poor then. Mum and Dad were good parents in spite of the poverty they faced. They then followed the Spanish flu. It was said that more people died from the flu than did in the Great War. Mum and Dad lost twins aged three to this flu. I had short trousers and jumpers but no underwear. Rickets and tuberculosis were rife. There was no medical help for these conditions really, apart from being sent to open air hospitals. I have an older sister called Dorothy and a younger sister called Margaret. My younger sister died in 1941 of rheumatic fever. She was 17. Funerals were paid for by the month. You could be buried for £8. When the Nash assistance came in, it was £28 to pay for a coffin. coffin. Many people were buried in paupers' graves then. I used to play a lot of street games as a boy, such as marbles and cricket. I used to use the lamppost as cricket stumps, but would run into the house when the police arrived. I went to bridge school, NW10. I'd walk to school. I loved to read when I was at school. In fact, I learnt to read by reading the Bible. I'd stand at the front of the class and deliver the passage. Children who weren't as confident as me would be, would be given the cane, a grown man giving a child the cane. If I pulled my hand back, then I'd get another stroke. 
I had a nice headmistress who was very good, as she would just slap me. You started at standard one, but wouldn't move to the next until next standard until you were proficient at level one. Special needs schools didn't exist then. There were 43 children in my class. Boys in senior school would do carpentry whilst the girls did cooking and needlework. I had to be able to read the ruler. If my work reached the required standard, then I'd, be a, I'd get a stamp on my card. A lot of children left school without being able to read or write. I met a young girl at Harrow on the hill recently. She was aged about 23 or 24. She told me that she couldn't read. I don't think she had enough money to pay for her train fare, so I gave her some money. It was a disgrace that children left school without being able to read then, just as it is a disgrace now. Teaching has changed so much from when I was a child. I learned by rote. I also think going to watch silent movies helped me to read. Remember how there, were bubble, there was a bubble with the words in it on the screen. I could read well by the time I was age seven. I remember Cliffhanger and Walter Milley, cowboy and, cowboy and Western films, as well as Charlie Chaplin. All his movements were to mine, but you could also buy small films when they were shifting pianos. They really made me laugh. When we were living in the first house, we bought the Evening Standard. The only book we had in our house when I was a boy was the Bible and a book on military law. Dad could remember everything he read in this book. He could read, but he couldn't spell. Before Mum married Dad, she was living in a tied cottage with her family. Her father was a farm labourer. Mum told me how they had deaf and dumb people as neighbours. Mum used to help out there, so she learned sign language. Our family moved into a lovely council house in the early 30s. It was a Canadian model which was shipped to England. There wasn't a brick on the, this house. It had four bedrooms and I shared a bed with my brother until I was older. I think that they were lucky to live in, I think we were lucky to live in a nice home. We had a separate bathroom and toilet. There was a 19 foot front garden and a 20 foot back garden. We lived at number, number one Wembley, which was by the River Brent. It's funny looking back, but this, there was this chap who had a big garden than us. He paid a penny a week extra rent money for this privilege. We also had 40 units of free electricity every week. However, a third of Dad's wages would be taken in rent money. Our lives were different then. The green grocery van visited the street weekly. The butcher would sell all his meat late on Saturday at a greatly reduced price. Mum used to buy T-bone of beef. We'd have a Sunday roast, cold meat on Monday, then on Tuesday, Mum would make a stew. Everything, including onions, would go into the pot. It smelled lovely. The butcher would deliver a block of ice, blocks of ice regularly. These blocks would be delivered wrapped in sacking to keep the ice cold. A van came round the street, street every week selling carbolic substance, which was used to keep everything clean in the houses. The rag and bone man called around every day. Wives used to love going out and finding a bargain whenever the rag and bone man called. However, visits were later reduced to once a week, one a week when new regulations were introduced. The milkman would come around with his pony every day. There would be a big containers on the back of his trolley where the milk was kept. Women would take out their measuring jugs to fetch the milk, their milk from him. Another of my earlier memories is of a group of lads clubbing together to buy this old car. It had a solid it had solid rubber tires. 
The boys must have spent ages trying to make it roadworthy. Another funny memory I have, I have is of private bus companies racing to get to collect their passengers before other bus companies got there. This practice came to the end after the end of after the London Transport Company was formed. I left school at 14 and went into the engineering business. I worked for Wavers Engineering Minerva, Minerva Road, Wilston. I didn't like this job, so I left after about four months. I then got a job at BEA Wood Royal Wood Royal Sovereign Pencil Company. This firm processed wood from Africa. Pencils have different woods. Wood is put into solutions, then into gas ovens. Wood was delivered by lorries. It was pushed into sheet metal sheds where it was stored in metal holders containing a solution and then put into gas machines. The heat was turned on for 34 hours. Afterwards, it was put into brick-built ovens and then poured before being, before being taken to the World Sovereign Factory for, for pencil making. I was employed there for about two years. At the start of the Second World War, I had to go for a medical checkup at Acton Drill Hall. I recall that this was near ironmongery and oil shops. The result of this was me getting a letter to post in the post to go to a private practice in Wimpole Street. I was ushered in to see this doctor. He even had his own X-ray machine. I was given another physical examination. I wasn't up to service, not even being a Bevan boy. I then worked for Victoria Machine Tool Company in North, Ap North Apton. I had been doing vertical drilling before. My job was now to do drill castings, making vertical drills for milling machines. It was a family firm. I was there for about 32 years. I was made redundant and was without a job for about two months. My son-in-law helped me to get a job at General Motors Kingsbury. I was then forced to look around for another job and was lucky enough to find job, a job working at the Heinz Brew Factory. It was a good firm to work for, as they had a canteen, which opened from 6.30am until 10am, then opened again from 12 until 2, then 5 until 6.30pm. It was a factory that was open all day and night. The factory was next to the Grand Union Canal. In the early days, the boats even transported live turtles to make turtle soup. In the same factory were women who were putting olives into jars. The women were not allowed to talk. They had huge barrels of vinegar, also brought in on barges. The factory also had its barges bringing in things like baked beans. They had about six lines of beans from small to large. I remember that there were half a pound tins of beans with pork fat on the top. Mum used to buy a tin for me. I recall how they used to have little lines running above where, that, where we worked. All the tins would be moving along at these lines. Mr Hines, who was a Quaker, was a very generous man and had started his business in America, growing horseradish, etc. And he would sell his produce on the markets. He must have done very well doing this. In 1920, he came to London on a business trip. The businessmen he met bought up all his stock. The factory had a doctor and five nurses to help to look after everyone. There used to be five tea rooms. If you started work early, then you would be given a free breakfast. It would be very handy 
for single people being able to get their meals in the factory canteen. Every Christmas people would be given a gift. Every five years you were given a booklet with things that you could choose as a gift. It proved very useful for young people who were looking at setting up home and getting married. I married Mrs Doreen Gower at Williston Register Office in 1947. She had three boys. I met her when she was working as a capstan lathe operator at the Victoria Tour Company. She had been living in Tottenham until she got bombed out. We had three daughters and a son. Our first child was born in 1947. She now lives in Bushy near Watford. Our second daughter was born in 1949. She now lives in Pinner. Our next daughter was born in December 1951. We then had a son, born December the 31st, 1955. He lives in Burton Latimer. I have been living in Burton Latimer since 1993. I have ten grandchildren. My family generally come up to visit me every three or four months. I was in hospital in October for a few weeks. When I was discharged, I stayed with my daughter in Bushy for a while. My wife died a day after Boxing Day, 1985, which also was the year that I retired. She died following a heart attack. I moved to Burton Latimer when London felt too dangerous to remain. We had been burgled twice and two house bricks had been thrown through the windows. I had an elder brother who lived in Harrow. His wife had died. I would go and visit him and he then moved in with me. I love Burton. It feels free from crime with no muggings or stealing of cars. I still love to read and love to visit Burton Library. So do I, Jim. A really lovely and welcoming place. I live from day to day now. I love to talk to older people who live here. I would say that there are an awful lot of transient people living here. I met a bloke a few years ago who told me how he had a Distinguished Conduct Medal. He, he says how his last operation was to free prisoners on, of war on the borders of Poland in Stettin. When they had polished the German guards off, it was tea time. He said to them, isn't it about time you went home? This man drank Mannion's pale in brown ale, which made me decide that I would like to sit next to him. We belong to the RAC club. I think that they built five, uh, five apart apartments there. That's the end of um, Jim's story, but another really, obviously, valuable one. Brilliant sense of humour, library, and sillies. Um, so, Jim, 1920. My mother... Mr Harry Bailey, 1918. The following story, written by Mr Bailey, was given to me by his daughter. One of my earliest memories I have is at the age of four, I was playing in the high street, Earthingborough, my hometown, when a soldier came walking up the street. He surprised me by saying, hello, young Bailey. He took me to my own house for, as you may have guessed by now, he was my father. From the age of four, I spent a happy time. I had them, my brothers, children, Fred, sisters, Mabel and Ellen. There were four below me and four above. I started school at the age of five and remember showing off when my mother left me with the headmistress and Mrs Hardick. Apart from us being poor, we were very a very happy family. My father did, a, did like to have a glass of beer, but not until we were well shod and fed did he have one. My days at the senior school were happy, except for one schoolmaster. 
My pals at this time were Sammy, Sammy Whiteman cousin, Ernie Bailey cousin, Ernie Fosfoster cousin, Tommy Overton, Fred Bell, Bull and Bert Partridge. But I had lots of nice pals in those days. I could name at least a score, but they weren't the main ones. Sammy was a daredevil and got us into a lot of trouble, but we seemed to thrive on it. One day he came into school smothered in oatmeal. When asked how it had got there, he said his mother threw the bowl at him because she had broken her copper stick on him. I think that he deserved all he got, for he used to give his mother a hell of a life. She locked him in his bedroom on one of our hospital parade days, and he hung out of the window with a sheet around his waist. Because the window was parallel with the road, the, par the parade tra travelled on. At the age of 10, I sold papers and delivered them, for which I got three and six per week. On Saturday nights, I sold football papers and got two, pe two pence per dozen. I used to sell about 18 dozen, so I used to give my mother about five shillings each week, all told. But I used to have a lot for pictures. I used to buy myself a pair of socks about every two weeks. I was a devil with socks and used to get a good pair for a shilling. My sisters never seemed to have any money when it was time for pictures and I used to treat them often. Maybe they don't remember this. I bought tap fruit from Jolly Birds. That shop is in our high street. Fred works at uh, Featherstone Hawes, Victoria Street, Mabel Express Works, now the Box Factory. At the age of 14, I started to work at Bay's Victoria Street. I used to have to start work at six in the morning, so I would not be late. I used to have a good wash at nights and put my colour and tie collar and tie back on to go to bed. But that only happened until a dad found out. Then the problem was solved by him letting me wear one of his mufflers. At 14, I got my foot trapped in the lift and had to have about 14 weeks on compensation at 12 and 6 a week. 2 and 6 better off than working, but the pain was worth all that. The big toenail had to be removed and Nurse Stanley, who was a nurse with Dr Gibb, started to cut it off with scissors, but this was more than I could stand, so I had it off by gas. The doctor said I would not want anything that night, but I never felt more hungry and I ate half a loaf. When I recovered from my injury, I went to work at the Express and they, when they gave me a rise, I had two weeks' money and then the sack. It was the only time I would ever have a second of my working life. Within a day, I went to work in Rushton, and that firm went bankrupt. I was never interested in girls at the time. We used to have lots of fun over at Finder, the whole gang of us, but after a time, we turned to Rushton. It was about this time that I met you. When I met you, I thought you were destined for me. Your eyes used to fascinate me. You used to stare at me on purpose. They were grand eyes. And to hide my embarrassment, I used to say, don't stare at me, owl eyes. We used to go to the co-op hall, but many times I would take you home after you had missed the last bus. I did not care, as there was something about you that seemed worth it. On September the 1st, 1934, a day I shall never forget, we were married by the Reverend Bookman at St Peter's Church, Rushton. Glancing out of the corner of my eye, I saw you walking down the aisle on the arm of your late father. You were dressed in a lovely pink gown and hat, white gloves up to the elbow. You were all that I had pictured and more. To me, you were the most wonderful thing that had ever happened to me. 
trained at Preston and my first posting was at Lakeburn, North Wales. Their nearest town was 26 miles away, but it was lovely there. So peaceful and beautiful. The hills seemed to touch the sky and the lake was magnificent. The hotel on the hill had all sorts of people and I took the well-known man trout fishing on the lake. He gave me half a dozen trout and 50 bags and we enjoyed the supper that night. Then there were eight of us there and we soon got to know the shepherds and the villagers about a mile away. A farmhouse up the, a farmhouse up the lake site used to sell us eggs and butter and we lived like lords for a while. Josephine Hillary Kenworthy was the daughter of this man and was 12 years old. She was a decent sort of kid and used to treat, treat us as her friends. When we went away they gave us 50 fags each and a letter with the crest of the House of Lords on wishing us goodbye as they had to hurry back to London. I moved from there to our depot at Penzarn and was there for about two weeks then to Cleebury Mortimer and while I was there Gloria was born. I got ten days compassionate leave. You were in the front room when I arrived home. You hadn't had an easy time. Dr Berry sold us his prams so you were fixed up okay by the time I went back. Soon after my return to North Wales I was moved to Maltings. If ever there was a place made for pigs, that's the place. It was the worst billet I had had in four years and four months. I stayed there for a month, then moved to Mount Cap, where I was a camp, camp runner on a bike. I'm hoping that someday I shall be home for good, just for you and I and the three children. At this, as this September night ends and the darkness falls, I close with love. Anon. Some of our neighbours included Mar Berwick, <coughs> EBT correspondent, Mrs Main, then Mrs Bollard, Mr Wheatley who had two daughters and a son. We lived in the same house until I was 14. Went to find an infant school which is now the junior school, then on to Wellingborough Road which later became a secondary school. I remember that the headmaster was a Captain Sutton. I also remember dancing around the maypole and the May Queen being crowned. I went to Sunday school at what is now Dr Spencer's house and the boys went to the boys' school. We sometimes had to go to church from Sunday school. When I think back how many shots we used to have, there was a big change. There was Mr Cox's general store on the corner where the health centre is. Across the road in the square there was a water pump and two massive stones beside it. Everyone who had horses etc used to use it. Mr York the blacksmith as well as Mr Dawson had premises in Well Street. I remember Mr Dawson beating the amble and singing at the top of his voice. He was really pleasant. My parents had a small holding during the war and I worked for my dad in Frapston Road. He kept all manner of things including pigs, calves, hens, rabbits, dogs and cats. In those days people were registered with us for eggs. The police called every month to ensure everything was legitimate. I enjoyed doing this work. There were two stone cottages and Chamberlain's lived in one. Where Halifax is now was a sweet shop owned by Mr Gallop. He was a really big man. 
He sold bottle sweets of every sort and chocolates. And I, I remember him as being really nice. I remember the houses in Eastfield Crescent being built. Mainly, many of them by Marriott, Marriott's whilst Burchard's father built them. It's the end of the, that story. We move on to Miss Wilson. I was born here in 1918 and went to Molso Infant School, then the Girls Junior School and then back to Molso School. I had one brother and one sister. My dad worked as a shoe operative at the co-op which was then at the bottom of Obelisk Road. We always respected our parents and I feel that we had good parents. We had to go to Sunday school and I was a Sunday school teacher later on. We always had a week away at the seaside every year. After church and during my teenage years, a group of us would walk to Findon Station. A few trains would stop there at that time. I had happy days at Sunday school and a treat would be a parade round Findon. Afterward there would be sports in Station Road. The old prize brass band played in the evenings and Mr Remington was the conductor. My time in the Entertainment Society started in a junior dancing group and I belonged to this for a number of years. Again, these were very happy times. Mum stayed at home to care for us and this was the usual thing to be doing those days. Very few women went out to work. During the war, I was a member of the Women's Land Army and I used to be up and at work by 6.30 and during harvest time. We would be working until late in the evening. I enjoyed the Land Army and I felt I was doing my bit for the country. We used to keep hens to supplement our living. When war was declared, we carried gas masks to Sunday school and they were kept in a cardboard square box. I remember planes going over when Coventry was bombed. Find an entertainment, find an entertainment church Sunday school was resumed after the war to try and build things up again. Hearst Cuttle Band used to play down at the Star Hall every Thursday night. We used to play badminton in the Star Hall. We used to go to pictures in Wellingborough on a Saturday night. Buses ran much later in those days. I feel that pavements were much tidier in those days, in litter, and litter is much more of a problem now. It is sad to see shops closing here. Traffic is heavier now, and I feel that we could really do with a bypass. I would far rather keep our town as it is than build houses on our outskirts. I think that we have a good variety of things happening, including over 60s, Darby and Joan, Brownies, Rainbows, Team Dean Entertainment Society, Rumblers, Town Women's Guild, Women's Institute, Cricket Club, Football Club, Darts Teams, British Legion, Tennis Club, Keep Fit, Yoga, Line Dancing, Pilates and St John Ambulance. The next person I spoke to was Kit Joyce, born, actually no. The next person I spoke to was Kit Joyce, born, actually no. Kit Joyce, 1915. My father's name was Herbert Edward and my mother was called Elizabeth Jane. 
they were born at Olney. Father was a shoemaker with a workshop in the back garden and he worked for Mansfield Shoes, Abington Park, Northampton. He used to make our shoes for us. Before marrying, I think that Mum was in service in London. Lucy was the youngest, and then Connie, Nell, and there were four boys, Archibald, Ron, Jack and Ted. I went to the council school, High Street, Olney. The oldest sister looked after the younger ones, and I think that I went to school when I was five. I caught the bus from Olney to Old Ideal Clothes in Wellingborough when I was 15 and I was employed as a machinist making men's waistcoats. I served an apprenticeship and worked from 7.30am until 5.30pm and I earned eight shillings a week. I met my future husband Frank who was on a press at the Ideal and he came from Bindon. We married at Olney Church when I was 23 and then moved to Findon and have lived here in the same house since then. I think that it cost us about £350. Brian was born in 95, 1945, Peter September 1946. Then after nine years we had Elizabeth Jane. They all started off by going to schools in Findon. When Brian left Doddington Road Grammar School he became a mining engineer, mainly working in the Middle East. Africa. Peter went to Earthingborough Secondary Modern School before going to, on to Weaver Technical College. He later went to Hull University and became a teacher teaching science, I think. Jane also went into a higher education studying at Lowestock and became a teacher, now working locally in a school teaching English. Brian had two children, two sons. Peter had one son called Adam and they live in Chelmsford, and Adam is about 17 now. Brian lives in South Wales. I stopped for work for some time when I had my children, then went to work for Ideal, which is where I think I met my very good friend, Peggy Stevens from, from Eastfield Crescent. I think that, though, that I also got to know her through the children, mainly Gail. As a way of making ends meet, I used to knit and sew. Frank later went to work at Alimasper and Latimer, as a foundry man, and he would come home quite shattered at tea time. I would say that I was a home bird, really. <clears throat> I met Audrey's husband, Paul Ellis, who also went to Wellingborough Grammar School in about 1962. Paul used to come over from Wellingborough when Frank and I went out. They used to roll up the carpets and get out the records. As their parties were a riot, a real scream. Paul would always clean up afterwards, and it would be spick and span from when we got back. We used to have a black and white wide-haired dog called Pooch, who was a friendly little animal. I sadly lost Frank some years ago, about 20. I've had to come to terms with his loss now, of course, but still miss him and can still see him in my mind's eye in his chair. The following contributor was Roma Pierce, born 1918. Father Conrad Rene. Mother, Edith Elizabeth, Lydia, both of High Wycombe. Father worked as a foreman for a furniture maker, whilst my mother worked as a pushchair worker, making the seats. My grandfather used to make Windsor chairs. He would engrave his initials on the bottom of the chair. My uncle was a head gardener for Benjamin Disraeli. I also had a sister-in-law who was a seamstress 
dressmaker for a duchess. I had two cousins who worked on the Windsor Castle estate. I also had a sister who lived until she was under until she was a hundred and three. I attended Priory School Road Board School. This was an elementary school which was run by professional people like doctors, nurses and professors. I didn't like school as I was terribly shy. I worked on a press in a laundry factory, having left school at the age of 14. However, when war broke out, our work there changed dramatically. The government replaced and then stored away all the laundry machinery and placed it with and replaced it with machinery for making telephone cords and cables for the Navy, Army and RAF. I carried out this work for six years. You weren't allowed to give notice and leave unless you were, were ill or having a baby. After the end of the war, the government brought back all of the machines. Of course, the original people were still there, but I didn't stay. I met a boy when I was aged 17. He was living with his mother, who had a, who had separated from her husband. She moved to the seaside, so of course her son, my boyfriend, moved with her. We had corresponded for a couple of years. He then wrote to me and told me that he had fallen in love with another girl. This was before the war. When war broke out, he joined the RAF and was initially stationed at High Wycombe. I met Ronald Pierce and I met Ronald Pierce and after six months we married in nineteen thirty seven. He was from Tatley Nair near Gerard's Cross. He was a supervisor for G I furniture G Philip G Plan furniture. He had been in the parachute regiment in France during the war and was wounded in the temple. It was a serious injury, of course. The surgeon who carried out the operation told my husband some time later that he had, he had operated on ten of, them, ten of the men with similar head injuries, but that my husband was the only one who had survived. As it was, he was still affected by this injury, but managed to live a successful life. He was a devout Christian. The surgeon hadn't expected him to live for more than three or four years. He studied his Bible and went preaching and was able to use his brain. It affected him in his attitude. It made him strict. We used to move about every seven years and ended up in Stony Stratford. I worked as a CAB advisor there and I loved it. At the age of 50, I began to work in a Christian bookshop. I loved books, so this was the perfect job for me. Unfortunately, the bookshop was bought out by another company. I was kept on and was in charge of ordering books and this gave me confidence. My husband died ten years ago from a very rare disease. We have one girl and two boys. Two, Ian is a travelling salesman for a dog charity. He had previously worked for a sailor's charity, helping widows of men who had drowned at sea. He now travels all over the country. Our other son owns a watch repair shop. This is in Milton Keynes. We have seven grandchildren. Sylvia has three children, while Simon has two children. He has married, he's married to a Filipino lady. Ian is married to a black African and they have two children. Bert Childs. I was born in Milrow and Wellingborough in 1911. My dad was a builder and my mother a housewife. We moved to find him in 1921. 
and we lived in Wellingborough Road, where buds and blooms are, blooms are now. I learnt the apprenticeship skills of building and my pay was five shillings for the first two years of my apprenticeship. I then spent two years as an improver and my pay increased to two sh by two shillings. I left school at 14 and qualified when I was 20. I had to pay for my own clothes with the money I earned. I went to Wellingborough Technical College three nights a week after working during the day and studied building quantities, general building and maths. We had a gang of builders in Wellingborough Road on land where the mini shoe factory had stood. The factory was burnt down when I was about 17. We were responsible for building a number of properties, including an avenue road, council yard, tensor lane, A6 garage, houses near the War Memorial, Altering Helm Grange Farm in Timolso, work on Lime Tree End, maintenance work on Finding Hall, shops for Goodman's, front of the co-op, shop for Mrs Olney in Allen Road, infant school in 1937 for £10,000, parlour houses in Eastfield Crescent, Hawthorne Road, bungalows in Ewanfield Road and air raid shelters in Rock Road. There used to be six butchers here and I think that Shelton's had two butchers. They owned a slaughterhouse in Regent Street. I recall that Stanley the postman lived at Lime Tree End. I think that they had bought Findon Hall as an ecclesiastical um, parson's retreat. It stood empty and deteriorating for years. Elm Grange Farm. Wartime mem memories. I remember making blackout frame frames when Chamberlain declared war September 1939. We used packing case lining and Chamberlain um, and we put heavy line curtains at the windows. We used to have air raid wardens walking round telling you off if you smoked a cigarette in the street. I was first stationed at Inverness, Lord Lovett's Castle and was in the Royal Engineers. I worked at Liverpool Street Dock directing the cargo as to where it should go. This was in our training days. I remember June the 8th D-Day too and the landing of infantry craft from the New Haven where we were sta stationed waiting for the invasion. At Armament Day as where the Mulberry Harbour was, we were forced to wade up to our necks and onto the shore. We then had to walk for several kilometres through sets of tapes where land had already been checked for bombs. When we eventually got to camp, we had to make our own billets whilst our clothes dried on us. I was then in a party that went on to Rotterdam. We were at Brussels when 4,800 flying bombs were dropped and I dived when the billets were blasted. There was glass everywhere. Mavis Collins' daughter put together all, the, all of the stories, much more, and created a small book entitled Are We All A Little Blind? to be shared in the hope of giving everyone an insight into Nan's remarkable life. Mavis Collins' daughter put together all the all of the stories, much more, and created a small book entitled "Are We All a Little Blind?" to be shared in the hope of giving everyone an insight into Nan's remarkable life.
continuation with Harry. Harry was also very adept at mending clocks, and many a time their clock would strike in the front room, followed by Westminster chimes ringing out in the kitchen. He also repaired various electrical goods, toasters, vacuum cleaners, irons, etc. And he was always the first port of call for relations and neighbours before taking them to a shop. His only problem was he was unable to see the colour of the wires, so it needed the help of a sighted person if the occasion arose. From the age of ten, he also taught Mavis how to mend a fuse in an electric box, so that if it blew at any time and he was not around to mend it, Nan would not have to sit in the cold, as their house was heated by electricity. When she was older, he always involved her in whatever he was doing, carpentry, electrics, chair caning, etc. Thus she had a basic training in lots of practical skills, which were to come in very useful in later life. Harry tried various treatments to restore his eyesight, and in 1953 he underwent a cornea operation on his left eye, which was a failure. In 1969 he had 17 days of injections, trying out a new drug to no avail. In 1972 he went underwent a cataract operation, after which he was informed nothing could be done, as he had damaged corneas and had problems with the retina, as well as the eye disease, intestinal keratitis, Harry's escapades. Whilst returning home from work one day, Harry had to cross a very busy dual carriageway, always having to wait for someone to take him across. On this occasion, he was carrying a bunch of willow canes, and on reaching the grass island in the middle of the dual carriageway, the gentleman suddenly let go of his arm and disappeared. Harry, knowing just how dangerous the road was, remained where he was, calling out for some assistance. A man then got hold of his arm, asking if he was okay. And Harry then related to the man what had happened, adding, I hope he didn't think I needed to plant these here, holding out his bunch of willows. I think he must have seen his bus coming, to which the man replied, Yes, mate, he did, but he won't be going very far, because I'm the driver. Having seen what had happened, he had got out of his cab and went to Harry's aid. One Christmas, having gone to the Angel Market, Islington, to purchase a duck for dinner, he climbed to the upper deck of the bus. Duck held in front of him to be confronted by a woman on the way down. Mind me, duck, says he. Never mind your duck, I'm trying to find something to stick up the arse of mine, was her reply. On reaching the upper deck, Harry found himself and Duck entangled in a rather large Christmas tree, which someone had positioned at the top of the stairs. Needless to say, by the time he got home, the Duck was rather the worse for wear. Harry was always up for a, jo- for a joke, and whilst at work one afternoon, a faith healer called at the workshop, preaching that he could restore the sight of the men. They refused to see him, but instead sent down one of the chaps who did not have any eyes, thus having a good laugh at the healer's expense, expanse. Married life. Nan married, married James Bradley, Harry, and they moved into a ground floor flat, 196 Lordship Lane, a few doors along from the rest of her family. When expecting her first child, Iris, in 1932, she applied to become a home worker, home was duly checked out to see whether it was suitable for a machine. 
and that is when she was loaned the Harrison Circular Knitter. Conditions attached were that you had to earn at least five shillings a week and the Middlesex County Council would make it up to ten shillings. You were sent six pounds of wool in a bag. The wool was in a skein which had then had to be waxed and wound on the bobbins. For each pair of socks returned at the end of the week, you received five pence. But if any were not up to standard, they were returned without payments. The toes were left open. If you didn't if you didn't manage to achieve your five shillings, you were not paid. Later, you then had to complete the socks. Payment then was 10p per pair, having then to earn 10 shillings a week, with the Middlesex County Council augmenting another 10 shillings. The time taken to machine a pair of socks was an hour for open toes and half an hour and a half for closed ones. When the Second World War began, home workers were asked to get their own sock orders, Wool could still be obtained from the Swiss cottage workshop and the Middlesex County Council paid still still paid the augmentation. Harry had been seconded in 1937 to work at the initial tail company, City Road, repairing all their laundry baskets and he obtained many orders from colleagues working there and from then on Nan never had to work for Swiss cottage again. At the start of the war, Nan and Iris were evacuated to Gedney Hill, Lincolnshire, staying once again on the farm. I had been talking to a lorry driver in a cafe and he was telling him he did the Peterborough run and he would take them, along with many others at that time, as it was feared that London was in the front line for a bombing attack. The circular machine was loaded on the back of a lorry along with Iris' bicycle they, that they made the uncomfortable journey in the cab. Lillian and daughter Sheila followed in another lorry. Arriving in Peterborough, the driver dropped them at Aunt Annie's. This, this being Wednesday, he told them he would come the next Saturday to take them on to Gedney Hill. In his own car, the lorry had to be returned to the yard and he had run out of time. This he did. James Henry Bradley Harry Born 18th of January 1907 at St Paul's Road, St Pancras, London. Later moving to Redhill Street, Regent's Park, London. Harry was the oldest of five children. In 1918, his mother contracted the flu. As there was, one, as there was no one to look after them, Harry, along with Sister Dolly, was sent to at the workhouse at Leavesden near Watford for a month until their mother was able to look after them again. He attended the church school until he was 11 years old. One Friday his sight deteriorated and by the Monday he was unable to see. He was taken into hospital and smothered in mercury, wrapped from head to foot in bandages and kept like this for four weeks. The idea was to penetrate the blood system. He came out of hospital in January and had no more schooling until he was 13 years old, when he was then registered blind, going first to Brecknock School and later to Linden Lodge Residential School, until he was 16, having some instruction in basket weaving and chair caning. His vision fluctuated enormously, and at the beginning of 1923 was de decertified, this left him in limbo, 
not enough not enough sight to work in a sighted place and too much for the blind workshops however by the end of 1923 he was recertified and begun a four-year basket making training course at the end of 1927 which he was again decertified so once again he was in limbo he managed to get a job as a basket worker instructor in Portsmouth. This lasted for two years. Having to return to London and unable to obtain any work, he decided enough was enough. He then pestered the authorities, London County Council, to let him work in the blind workshops. They still refused to reinstate him, so he stood outside County Hall with his boots in tatters and a placard hung around his neck until they relented on the proviso that a doctor stated that he would eventually lose his sight. In 1930, he started work at Greenwich Workshops. He was then living in Camden Town, so it was quite a long journey. During this year, Harry met Nan at a monthly dance held at Swiss Cottage Workshops in Kilburn. They had previously known one another briefly at Brecknock School. Whilst courting, they visited Harry's brother in hospital, deciding to take Nan for a drink afterwards. They entered a pub, or so they thought. Harry requested the drinks, to which the man replied, Sorry, mate, no one will treat you to a pint here. You're in the Undertaker's, the pub's next door. So much for making a good impression. In 1931, he exchanged with a work colleague and went to work at Swiss Cottage, which was much nearer to home. From 1937 to 47, he worked at the initial towel company and from 1947 to 53, returned once again to Swiss cottage workshops. The journey then became too much for him as his sight and also his hearing was deteriorating quite rapidly. So he then transferred to Tottenham Court Road, where he remained until he retired in 1974. In later life, he became profoundly deaf which he found to be more of a problem than his blindness, as it isolated him from many conversations which would have he would have previously made with people. He continued working at home, making baskets and chair caning, and repaired or replaced the seats on numerous chairs, many from the House of Lords and the House of Commons. Many a famous bottom may well have graced his seats, on one occasion, a Rolls-Royce was seen parked outside their council house. The neighbours were really inquisitive. The chauffeur, having taken the chair for repair inside, saw Nan at her machine. On returning to the car, he related what he had seen to Lord. We don't know who. When they returned to collect the chair, both the chauffeur and Lord went into the house, where Nan demonstrated how to make a, make a sock on the machine. He then purchased a couple of pairs before leaving. Nan had her wall sent there and continued working. After six weeks, with no bombs had been dropped, she decided to return to London, returning once again by lorry. Harry did not know they were returning, so... When they arrived home, the front room was full of planks of wood, which Harry was going to use for some project or another. Nan, being quite house-proud, was not very impressed. Nan, Harry and Iris remained at their ground-floor flat 
in Lordship Lane, and Anderson's shelter was erected in the back garden, which they shared with the people living upstairs. They thought it was a little beneath their status to share and did not use the shelter, so the people living next door with a rather large brood of children shared with Nan and her family. However, the shelter was so damp, Harry decided it would be better to sleep in the bathroom, which was under the stairs. He then made a board to go on top of the bath for Nan and Iris to sleep on, and he slept on the bathroom floor. Iris acquired roller skates for her birthday and was gaily skating up and down when she was asked to take Nan to visit a friend. She wanted to go on her skates, but Nan flatly refused, saying she didn't want to have to run alongside. In April 1st, 1943, saw the birth of Mavis, and in November of that year saw the start of the Venture Club for the Blind, organised by Miss Agnes Evans, a home teacher for the Middlesex Association for the Blind. Nan became a member. The following is an excerpt from Agnes Evans' biography. One morning, after a very noisy night, I set off to visit a young blind woman who had recently had a baby. It was a strange feeling during these days that one might not find things as they should be. The door was on the latch and a voice called, Come in, when I knocked. The mother was just finishing the baby's bath and drying her as she lay her on a towel on the table in the sunshine. The health visitor called whilst I was there and told me that Mrs Bradley was an example which many sighted mothers could follow, a very capable and independent couple whose two daughters were perfectly normal girls. These are some of the stories of her life as a totally blind wife and mother bringing up two children, coping with running a home and taking care also of husband. Her husband, who was similarly disabled, were riveting to an almost inspirational degree. To quote but one of dozens of openings, she came into the show with what when she was announced, when she announced that she had just finished taking her knitting machine to pieces to effect a repair. This from a nineteen-seven-year-old blind since childhood, and you imagine you and I imagine sometimes that we have had problems. Thank you, Mum. You meant so much and gave so much pleasure to so many people, and most particularly to me. To have encountered you, if only by way of a radio programme, was to become a rare privilege indeed. Richard Spendlove, MBE, producer, presenter, BBC South and East of England. The poem that follows was written for Nan on her 90th birthday by her friend Eileen, who went blind later in life. I'm sure you'll agree it gives us all food for thought. Happy birthday to you, Nan, who's who's never seen the light, but I have never heard a moan, whatever's been her plight. With her dancing and her happy face, she's been God's gift to me. I felt so sorry for myself when first I could not see. I know of people in this world who have have the gift of sight, but never ever lift their eyes to skies ablaze with light. I have not known Nan very long, but long enough to find a world so full of happiness. Are we all a little blind? Perhaps we need to think about that one. As both my parents, my mum, Brenda May, and my father, James Hopper Nesbitt, were both blind, uh, mum from birth, uh, dad losing 
his early 20s and they were brilliant parents. I've been particularly drawn to the stories of both Miss Margaret Rockwell and her sister Amy also worked there as a nurse. Many strict rules were applied. No talking to one another, only to teachers, boots to be undone down to the last three eyelet holes, and the girls that could see little had to wear opaque glasses during lessons so that they would not have an advantage over the totally blind. If any of these rules were flouted, punishment would be given on their only free night without homework, which was a Wednesday. They would either have lines or for the poor girls unable to dress themselves properly, they had to practice dressing over and over again. Wednesday evening was also when the preacher came. If boots were not tied properly in the morning, they were confiscated for the day. Nan by this time had discarded her leg irons and instead her legs were heavily bandaged. She tended to walk her boots over on one side, and so to compensate for this, they made her wear boots on the wrong feet. Boots sent to be repaired were given to anyone on return. Even if you had a new pair, you probably would not see them again. The 14-year-old students then moved to Elm Courthouse. At the start of term, all the girls were given a list of jobs to be undertaken, undertaken before breakfast each morning and a bucket number. Jobs to be done included all the cleaning, scrubbing of the stairs, steps, polishing, etc. Nan, who was unable to bend, was given the silver to clean daily on a bench in the small orchard outside. During the cold weather, the silver very often froze to the bench. Poor girls were given the job of peeling potatoes, and if any were rotten, they used to throw them over the wall. One time, however, the man who lived there collected them all up and took them to Miss Rockwell. Their punishment was to walk round the hall all day carrying a basket full of rot- these rotten potatoes. Every morning, in addition to their tasks, they had to run round the orchard calling out the number of laps they had done to the principal, Maggie, who lay in her bed with a window open. At the end of the orchard garden was a large shed and a chicken coop and the caretaker, obviously a caring man, used to leave the window of the shed open for the girls so they were able to leave an apple in there which they had to previously pilfered on the, from the orchard. Every time they passed the window on their compulsory run, they were able to have a bite and replace it in the shed. The other girls were, who were able to see a little used to warn Nan when she was near the window. Breakfast was at eight, so all jobs had to be completed by then. Breakfast was porridge and a slice of bread and butter, nothing to drink. Dinners, though very basic, were good and they also had a sweet. If anyone misbehaved, they went without their sweet. 
A cup of water was given with their dinner, their first drink of the day, and they sat eight to a table, with Bonvard having to act as waitress, the rota being changed each week. Tea consisted of two slices of bread and butter and half a cup of tea. Incidentally, Maggie Ruffle had a permanent maid waiting solely on her. I think I'll leave this story here for now. sister Amy also worked there as a nurse. Many strict rules were applied. No talking to one another, only to teachers, boots to be undone down to the last three eyelet holes and the girls that could see little had to wear opaque glasses during lessons so that they would not have an advantage over the totally blind. If any of these rules were clouded, punishment would be given on their only free night without homework which was a Wednesday. They would either have lines or for the poor girls unable to dress themselves properly, they had to practice dressing over and over again. Wednesday evening was also when the preacher came. If boots were not tied properly in the morning, they were confiscated for the day. Nan by this time had discarded her leg irons and instead her legs were heavily bandaged. She tended to walk her boots over on one side and so to compensate for this, they made her wear boots on the wrong feet. Boots sent to be repaired were given to anyone on return. Even if you had a new pair, you probably would not see them again. The 14-year-old students then moved to Elm Courthouse. At the start of term, all the girls were given a list of jobs to be undertaken, undertaken before breakfast each morning, and a bucket number. Jobs to be done included all the cleaning, scrubbing of the stairs, steps, polishing, etc., Nan, who was unable to bend, was given the silver to clean daily on a bench in the small orchard outside. During the cold weather, the silver very often froze to the bench. Poor girls were given the job of peeling potatoes, and if any were rotten, they used to throw them over the wall. One time, however, the man who lived there collected them all up and took them to Miss Rothwell. Their punishment was to walk round the hall all day carrying a basket full of rot- these rotten potatoes. Every morning, in addition to their tasks, they had to run round the orchard, 
calling out the number of laps they had done to the principal, Maggie, who lay in her bed with a window open. At the end of the orchard garden was a large shed and a chicken coop, and the caretaker, obviously a caring man, used to leave the window of the shed open for the girls so they were able to leave an app in there which they had to previously pilfered on the, from the orchard. Every time they passed the window on their compulsory run, they were able to have a bite and replace it in the shed. The other girls were, who were able to see a little used to warn Nan when she was near the window. Breakfast was at eight, so all jobs had to be completed by then. Breakfast was porridge and a slice of bread and butter, nothing to drink. Dinners, though very basic, were good and they also had a sweet. If anyone misbehaved, they went without their sweet. A cup of water was given with their dinner, their first drink of the day, and they sat eight to a table, with one girl having to act as waitress, the rotor being changed each week. Tea consisted of two slices of bread and butter and half a cup of tea. Incidentally, Maggie Ruffle had a permanent maid waiting solely on her. I think I'll leave this story here for now. Stairs, where she received a substantial blow to her legs. Over the next two years her sight deteriorated and by the time she was four she was totally blind and crippled. Age five she started at Brecknock School York Way Islington which had two separate units, one for blind children the other for handicapped. Each had two classrooms and their own playground. In 1911, Nan's mother died, leaving Lillian to look after five girls, an older brother and father. The teacher at Nan's school thought it would be nigh on an impossible task for Lillian having to care for them and Nan, so recommended that Nan be sent away. Nan was sent to Highgate Hospital and from there to two others, the names she could not recall. She eventually ended up in Queen's Mary, Carshalton, Surrey, where she remained until 1916. The beds were then required for wounded soldiers coming back from the First World War. During her stay in hospital, she was kept in bed for the majority of the time, not receiving any schooling as there was no one to teach her braille. Their diagnosis at that time was that she had TB of the bones and as, as, the, and as rest was the cure, that was what she got although never actually confirmed. We think it was still disease, which is a form of arthritis in children, usually triggered by some form of injury, such as a severe knock. When returning home with an iron on one leg in order to level her legs up, a splint with metal under the boots on the other, Nan had to return to Brecknock School to be taught braille and had to go into the beginner's class. The following year, Having accomplished this, she was sent to Elmcourt Residential School for the Blind, West Norwood. 18 Goodings Road, Holling, Holling, Holloway, London was the family home. The accommodation consisted of a scullery, kitchen, dad's bedroom, brother's bedroom, this all on the ground floor, upstairs the girls' bedroom, on which there was one double bed and one single. Lillian, Elsie and Maud shared the double whilst Wynne and Gladys had the single. 
the remainder of the house was occupied by another family. On Nan's arrival back home, Maud had to sleep with her friends, the Nash sisters, over the road, so that Nan could have a bed. Bedding consisted of sheets and an old railway coats. These they called out eider down with sleeves in. Cooking was done on the fire, as the gas meter had been robbed and they could not afford to pay the board, the, the bill. Oil lamps were for, used for lighting. The food was very basic, the mainstays being bread, hopefully a joint on Sunday, cold meat on Monday, then the bones stewed and would last until Thursday. For the remainder of their week they had bread sop, bread, sop, bread hot water, salt, pepper and boiled rice with a spoonful of jam. Every Monday, fa- every Monday, father's Sunday suit and boots and the girls' Sunday clothes were taken to uncle's, the pawn shop. Nan was always taken along on Friday to retrieve them as the pawnbroker felt sorry for her and always gave her a half penny. Along with many other families of the time, fathers would very often be drunk more be called upon to bring Wally home with the help of the Nash sisters. She always went there. She always went through his pockets first to see, see if he had any money remaining in them, which they kept. In the front room, Will's, Will's bedroom was a HMV gramophone with a huge brass horn. Nan was absolutely terrified of this, thinking that the man would come out and get her. During, during this time, they moved across the road to number 19, next at Hungerford School. The Nash sisters and their father also came along. They had the two attic rooms and the gas stove was on the landing along with a single water tap. Mr Nash died after a couple of years. In a lively and detailed way, Contributors of Lives Less Ordinary take the reader back to an earlier time when difficult times were faced, challenges overcome and history written. Men, having returned from World War I, sleeping on park benches, pawning D-mob suits, fathers returning from the front, meeting their children for the first time. A daughter recalls that her father made opera boots for the stage and of her seeing Errol Flynn at the Derngate, Northampton. How with no toilets on the train, she rushed back from the station platform, worrying that she might miss the train. How the wireless played a big part in everyone's lives, with children's hour on the home service, beginning at 5pm. Then there are memories of the coronation of, of George in 1936, and Queen Elizabeth in 19. 19- 53 and of street parties.